Let's uh, check in with Tucker Carlson and then come back with the paranoid style in American politics. Okay, Mr. Tucker, please take it away. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. Here's a story that tells you a lot. Last Friday, a 35-year-old convicted felon called Austin Simon walked into a neighborhood convenience store in Harlem in New York City and pushed his way behind the counter. Austin's girlfriend had just had a dispute with the clerk in the store. The clerk was a 61-year-old Dominican immigrant called Jose Alba. The woman wanted a bag of potato chips, but there was no money left on her government-issued food stamp card. So the clerk tried to take back the chips. The woman became enraged and went and got her boyfriend. Now, the boyfriend, Austin Simon, had a long history of violent crime. Simon had spent at least three years in prison for assault. His most recent parole expired last May. Though Simon had no apparent job, he was wearing a $300 designer T-shirt and a gold earring. And he was extremely angry. He was furious. Austin Simon threw Alba into a wall, then leaned down and screamed in his face. When the older man stood up, Simon grabbed him by the neck. Here's a local news account describing what happened next. Surveillance video shows 37-year-old Austin Simon push the clerk behind the bodega counter and then stand over him. Moments later, a struggle ensues. The two wrestle and the clerk stabs Simon multiple times. This happened late Friday night in the Blue Moon convenience store off West 140th Street. Police were called for an assault in progress and found Simon bleeding from two stab wounds in his chest and one in his neck. He later died at the hospital and police arrested the deli clerk, 51-year-old Jose Alba, for second-degree murder. That was 61, by the way. He's every bit as old as he looks. Now, Simon died. Every death is sad. But at the same time, decent people can acknowledge that some deaths are much sadder than others. And Austin Simon's death is not one of those. Simon was a thug. He was a taker. He was a cruel and vicious bully. Austin Simon was the sort of person who beats up old men simply because he can. Functional societies have zero tolerance for people like Austin Simon because people like Austin Simon hurt the weak and prevent the productive from producing. They themselves contribute nothing. They are, in fact, the mirror image of men like Jose Alba. Jose Alba came to the United States 30 years ago to work, and working is exactly what he was doing at the bodega in Harlem at almost midnight on Friday, selling chips to people who don't bother to work, holding up the retail economy for minimum wage. A healthy society celebrates, venerates men like Jose Alba, men with jobs and families, men with independence and dignity. And above all, a healthy society affirms the right of men like this to self-defense. Self-defense is the cornerstone of all liberty. If you can't defend your own life and property, you have no rights at all. And that was obvious in America for centuries. This was a country whose leaders encouraged decent behavior, who held up the common man, as a hero. But that has changed. Jose Alba wasn't lauded for his bravery or his resourcefulness. He wasn't congratulated for defending himself in the face of a violent felon much younger than him, though every single normal person who watched that video on social media applauded every single one. And yet Alba was arrested at the scene and he was sent to jail. An openly racist, Soros-backed prosecutor called Alvin Bragg then charged Jose Alba with felony murder. He sent him to Rikers Island, a jail famous among Democrats because it's so squalid and so dangerous that they have spent decades trying to shut it down. But it wasn't so bad they didn't send Jose Alba there. 
And then Bragg set his bail at a quarter of a million dollars, $250,000, in a city that very recently was considering getting rid of all bail. Compare that to the bail of other violent criminals. Now, a judge later lowered that bond to $50,000, but the message that Bragg sent was very clear to everyone watching, and it was this. If the criminal who assaults you is a member of a favored group, you don't have the right to fight back. You may not defend yourself. You must take whatever he gives you because thugs have more rights than you do. You being the person dumb enough to be working at almost midnight in a bodega in Harlem on a Friday. That's the message. And it wasn't simply Alvin Bragg who was sending it. The tech companies, as always, joined with government as a unified force to send this message. GoFundMe deleted Jose Alba's fundraising page from the Internet. Contrast this with how the left's militia are treated. Now, GoFundMe explained, we don't allow fundraising for anyone who's been charged with a violent crime. Really? Well, that's just a lie, and provably so. BLM rioters were encouraged to raise money for bail and their legal defense. They can have lawyers, but not bodega clerks. They are powerless, and they must remain so. So GoFundMe openly encouraged rioting in the name of George Floyd on behalf, in effect, of Joe Biden two years ago. But Jose Alba? They shut his family down in hours. So who made this decision specifically? You should know their names. GoFundMe is a company. Here's who runs it. Tim, Tim Cadigan is the CEO of GoFundMe. Juan Benitez is the president. You're seeing their pictures right there. The chief corporate affairs officer at GoFundMe is called Margaret Richardson. These are the people who made this decision to crush Jose Alba and his family. But they're not the only ones. Virtually every power center in the United States agrees that self-defense is no longer allowed. You could no longer fight back. And if you don't believe it, remember how the media covered the Rittenhouse trial. He carried a gun across state lines. He's a white supremacist. Here was a man exercising his lawful, his fundamental right of self-defense. But he was charged with murder, and corporate media backed the prosecutors. During Rittenhouse's trial, one prosecutor called James Krause told the jury openly that Rittenhouse should have just allowed the thugs to beat him to death. He had no right to defend himself. Quote, everyone takes a beating sometimes, Krause says, a man who's never taken a beating in his life. And then another prosecutor you'll call called Thomas Binger declared that if you own a gun, you are effectively waiving your right to defend yourself. Watch. They have to convince you that Joseph Rosenbaum was going to take that gun and use it on the defendant because they know you can't claim self-defense against an unarmed man like this. You lose the right to self-defense when you're the one who brought the gun. So those are the closing arguments in Wisconsin during the Rittenhouse trial. You lose the right to self-defense when you're the one who brought the gun. Now, legally, that is nonsense. It's insane. There's no reference point whatsoever in American law for that statement. But the law is not the point. They don't need the law. They now have the unilateral authority to destroy your business, ruin your reputation, throw you in prison, prevent your family from hiring a lawyer to defend you or get you out of jail. You saw that happen in St. Louis when another Soros-backed DA, this one called Kim Gardner, targeted the McCloskey family. Now, the McCloskeys were sitting having dinner outside their house, bothering nobody in St. Louis when a mob out of nowhere came through the gate, broke the gate, stormed their property, and threatened them. So they went inside and got their legally retained 
firearms and displayed them. They didn't shoot anybody. It was their property. They held up their guns and said, get off our land. Stop threatening us. What did the Soros-backed prosecutor do? Charge the McCloskeys with felonies. I am disturbed by the events that occurred over this weekend where there were peaceful protesters who were met with guns and a violent assault. Since learning of these events over this weekend, I've worked with the public and the police to investigate these tragic events. I will use every extent of Missouri law to hold individuals accountable. Another Soros-backed prosecutor. Now, you have to wonder, why would a Hungarian currency trader be interested in spending untold millions and millions and millions of dollars to invert our justice system, to put the state on the side of the lawless, to put prosecutors on the side of the criminal against the law abiding. What source is interested in doing that? It's clearly working. And what gives him the right to change our ancient justice system? No one in the media asked that question. Instead, they celebrated the DAs that he installed. Kim Gardner was celebrated by the news media as CBS 60 Minutes reported gleefully, Gardner, quote, stopped locking up nonviolent offenders, dropped low-level drug cases, and ended cash bail. Right. What 60 Minutes didn't tell you is that under Gardner's tenure, the city recorded its higher per, highest per capita murder rate in over half a century. Many more people died. Died. And not just in St. Louis, and not just in New York, and not just in Baltimore or Philadelphia. Everywhere. Arlington, Virginia, experiencing a significant increase in violence crime this year. Why? A Soros-backed prosecutor called Parisa Degani-Tofti has also prosecuted clear cases of self-defense. You can't defend yourself. The people who are favored by the regime can do whatever they want. You can do nothing to protect your life, your family, your property. Burglars broke into the Arlington smoke shop in March of 2020, middle of the night. A store employee who was sleeping in the store because there were so many break-ins shot at the robbers, as is his right. In fact, his duty, and he should be applauded for that. But no, he was prosecuted. We spoke to the store owner about what happened. They broken into the store, three men with masks on. The neighbor upstairs said when they broke the window, it sounded like a car smashing into the store. Hamza, the employee, uh, he said it sounded like a shotgun. And when he woke up, he said he just reached for the pistol and opened the door and shot three times to scare them. And one of them hit the suspect. Uh, and what happened uh, after that, when the police came, we thought we're in the right. Three masked men, 4.30 a.m. on a Sunday morning. How can we? So I was watching Hamza across the street with boxers on, with the tank top. In cold weather, 40 degrees, the cops treating us like we're the ones who caused the harm. Do you know what the police officers told him? Why didn't you run out the back door? So at this very moment, the Biden administration is letting in millions, literally millions of illegal aliens, foreign nationals whose identities we can't actually know because they work hard, the American dream, the Statue of Liberty... Give us your tired, huddled masses, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. But then when those immigrants come here and work in a bodega in Harlem or a smoke shop in Arlington and they're faced with violent crime, this same party, the Democratic Party, punishes them for defending themselves. Whose side are they on exactly? Now, in the, in the Arlington smoke shop case, that prosecution resulted ultimately in an acquittal. Thank God.
But what about the employee who was in prison? He spent months in jail. His life was destroyed. Again, the point of this is not just to hurt him, but to send a message to the rest of us. Whether you're in Arlington or Kenosha or St. Louis or New York City, you do not have the right to self-defense in the United States. This is national policy. And Joe Biden has effectively articulated it. You might remember when he delivered his big anti-gun speech shortly after he took office, the one where he declared the Second Amendment isn't, quote, absolute. He'll decide what your rights are. Biden did not even mention self-defense a single time. And that's because Democrats don't believe it is a right. They've said as much. Here's Claire McCaskill, some kind of washed up Democratic politician, one of the dumbest senators ever to serve in the body from Missouri, explaining on MSNBC why people don't actually need ammunition to shoot at home invaders. Let's talk about high capacity magazines. Um, let's talk about um, zeroing in on the type of weapons and these magazines that are designed only for one thing, Joe, and you've talked about it over and over again, that's to kill people quickly, to kill people quickly. Now, if you have a home intruder, you don't need to fire 70 rounds. <laughs> Claire McCaskill will decide how you defend yourself. You don't need 70. How many do we need, Claire McCaskill? Do you know anything at all about anything? Give us a list of the things you know. That would not include anything about firearms. So-called high-capacity magazines don't have 70 rounds. They don't even have half of 70 rounds. No one in the Democratic Party knows what a round is anyway. Here's Dick Durbin claiming that people are walking around with clips with multiple pieces of ammunition. Watch the ignorance on display. Still beyond uh, any understanding that I can offer as to why in the world individuals have to have to purchase and own a gun that was made for military purposes. And put a clip on this that has multiple uh, pieces of ammunition that can be shot at an individual. They haven't learned, they've been talking about guns for 50 years. They haven't learned a single thing about guns. Why? Because they don't care about guns. Because it's not actually about guns. It's about power. They make the society far more dangerous than it was three years ago. They make it far more chaotic than it has ever been in its history. It's their voters doing this. And then they tell you there's nothing you can do about it. You can't even defend your own life or the life of your family. That's what they're saying. That's not a reassuring message. It's really ominous. Dana Lash has spent a lot of time defending the Second Amendment, which is in the Constitution, by the way. She joins us tonight. Dana, thanks so much for coming on. So the prosecution of happened. this guy who, by the way, used a knife, not a gun. So it, it tells you it's not really about the gun. Right. Of Jose Alba, I don't think there's a single normal person in this country who watched that tape wasn't rooting for Alba against that useless thug who's beating up an old man. What does it tell you that they sent him to Rikers Island with a quarter million dollar bail? Yeah, and, and Tucker, from what I've read, too, that bail apparently was higher than one of the illegal immigrants that came into the United States and was planning a July 4th terrorist attack along with another illegal entrant to Virginia. And they were armed and they were they were found out and they were arrested. But apparently uh, I read a report just shortly before coming onto your program that it was something around $15,000. Uh, that's yeah. what their bond was set at. It, it's amazing, the story of, of Jose Alba and the bodega, because clearly Alvin Bragg, the DA here, uh, values 
criminals and the safety of criminals more so than he values innocent people. Look, I get that Democrats think that being a victim is a virtue, but it's not. I think that every it's time in America that everybody just kind of follow what I like to call the F.A. and F.O. creed of self-defense. If a criminal wants to bust up in your home in the middle of the night and try to take you on, the consequence of that, Tucker, is they may get shot. And it may oh, be with someone who has a sporting rifle and they have a 30-round magazine. If they, if someone wants to, a criminal decides to bust up and beat up an old man in a bodega, he might get stabbed. That's a consequence of being a criminal and screwing around with violent behavior. And it's time that lawmakers stop shaming innocent people like Jose Alba for simply defending himself. You're right. It's a fundamental right. But not just innocent people, the people who are by definition the backbone of the country, the guy who's selling lotto tickets and cigarettes at midnight on a Friday in a convenience store, the guy who's actually working, he's the guy we punish? I mean, it's just so grotesque. I, I don't even know yeah. what to say. No, I, it, it's, it's, it's a travesty, honestly, that this guy, and I think they just reduced his bail. I think that the DA just reduced his bail yeah. because of uh, outcry. He shouldn't even be in prison in the first place. And it was no. reported that the girlfriend had also, she had a knife and she tried stabbing him as well. She's apparently walking around enjoying life. And you made mention too of this thug. He goes in wearing a $350 designer shirt. His girlfriend couldn't afford chips. Maybe the girlfriend should have told her man to stop spending their money on designer t-shirts so she could afford a bag of potato chips. We need to get our priorities in order. Yeah, I would say. When you see Joe Biden's approval rating among Hispanic voters at 24%, among all voters with jobs, uh, you can see why, because they're yeah. not on the side of people with jobs. That's the truth. Dana Lash, great to see you. Thank you. Exactly. Thanks, Tucker. So something really interesting is happening in Europe. There are massive protests. Government response in Europe has been violent. Why? because the government in the Netherlands is shutting down farms in the name of climate change. Oh, the food supply is threatened by climate activism. This could happen here. We'll show you what's happening there after the break. Okay, so we start every every show with Tucker Carlson. So come back to the channel every day at this time and we'll give you a good, strong, long, hard burst of Tucker Carlson. Uh, meanwhile, he's in commercial, so let's hit some other stories here. This is a cautionary tale about people whose political activism has taken them to a dark place. One particular right-wing political activist apparently committed suicide. And particularly, and I, I, maybe that's a bit of an overstatement to, to make it a fact, but what I'm saying is we don't need any more of this kind of whining that is basically all the movement does, you know, like, oh, you know, you know. The, 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 we're being occupied by Mexicans or, you know, look, there's a Jew in, you know, uh, Joe Biden's cabinet or whatever. It's like no shit on the latter. And on the former, that's really just kind of, that, that's propaganda talk in the worst sense of the word. We're not being occupied by anyone. You know what I'm talking about. It's just red meat for the movement. We don't need any more of that. It's not actually healthy to do that. And I agree that we're in a kind of weird situation. I don't think that people like myself are going to be jailed anytime soon. And I do have antennae and you know, I mean, figuratively, not literally, but um, I do have antennae. And if I start to sense that, I might very well flee the country or something. But I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. And so, I, but like, I'm willing to face the consequences that are actually out there, which is serious criticism. Um, for me, a lot of bad faith criticism. I mean, it just, it comes with the territory and you have to be willing to deal with it. And if you're not psychologically able to do it, you don't need to do it. The second point, which I think is equally important, maybe even more important, is that 
again, we don't need any more red meat. What we could really use are people. Okay, so kind of an amazing story here in the Washington Post. He was one of the nation's most revered gay cops. His arrest changed everything. You'll be shocked to find out what he did was that uh, he met a boy on a, a gay dating hookup app and they they hooked up at midnight in their cars and uh he's now arrested and in jail but he was one of the nation's most revered gay cops apparently right so he was in charge of uh educating us right and uh he was profiled everywhere he was celebrated everywhere and he was very proud of his credentials and uh yeah, he, he was arrested for hooking up with, with a kid, right? They, they just met on, on a gay app, and uh, he, he got arrested. So uh, celebrated all over Washington, D.C., all over the country for his innovative work with uh, gay policing, but uh, ends up at 12.30 a.m., right, having sex with a 16-year-old boy. And he, he had a long history of out of control behavior but he was he was a proud gay man all right he he revolutionized the relationship between the police and washington dc's lgbtq community people saw him everywhere dance clubs book clubs hospital bedsides funeral homes early morning court hearings late night domestic disputes he was caught a living legend the Department of Justice, the State Department, Amnesty International, the Southern Poverty Law Center, other police departments relied on his expertise. Now he is in jail. All right? He, he ended fairy shaking. All right? So in the late 1990s, while he was building career in narcotics investigations, another D.C. police officer was stationing himself outside a gay club in southeast Washington. He was watching for men leaving the club who were wearing wedding rings or getting into cars with baby seats. He wrote down their license plates, found their contact information, and called them, paid $10,000, he said, or he'd expose them to their wives and employers. The scheme was known as fairy shaking. I hadn't heard of this. It eventually led to an FBI investigation and a two-year prison sentence for the officer and the resignation of the chief of police. So to those in the LGBTQ community, extortion was just the latest example of mistreatment by a police force with a decades-long history of targeting vulnerable queer people. And so along came this bloke, Parson, and uh, he became a hero to the community. He was innovative. All right? He, he, he led an LGBTQ alliance, right, to protest the discrimination by law enforcement. He told people no longer are police the enemy. And so now this LGBTQ police unit and the LGBT community worked in tandem to aid the department. So we'll get back to Tucker Carlson here. And next commercial break, we'll continue with this amazing story out of Florida. Now, you may have noticed the people in charge have a tendency to use fear and panic to get what they want. And what they want is to get richer and more powerful. Obviously, they did it with COVID quite effectively. They're doing it with a lot of things. But nothing is more effective for the left globally than climate politics. This is an existential crisis. We're all going to die unless you obey and make us more powerful. Bring us the Green New Deal or we are all dead. That's what they're telling you. They're not... They're not actually trying to win you over or explain anything. 
They're trying to whip you into a panic. So you have to ask yourself, where will this go if we let them do it? Well, look to Europe, which is about five years ahead of where we are now in the United States. Look what's happening in the Netherlands right now. Now, the Netherlands, you may not have known this, we didn't, is the second largest exporter of agricultural products in the world after the United States. This week, in the name of fighting climate change, the government there ordered farmers to slash emissions from their cows by 50%. Now, keep in mind, this happening exactly the moment when China and India, the fastest growing economies in the world, are using more fossil fuels than ever. But no one ever says a word about that because you can't criticize China or India. But your cows are emitting too much. So this new order in the Netherlands would have the effect of destroying agriculture in the Netherlands. So farmers weren't for it. And to their great credit, there's still enough testosterone among Dutch farmers to protest it. And the police? Well, they opened fire. In one case, they opened fire on a 16-year-old boy driving a tractor. Watch this. So that's Western Europe and one of the supposedly most civilized countries in the world. This is what climate activism actually looks like. Men in uniform shooting at 16-year-olds. But the protest didn't stop because for the farmers, for the country, everything is at stake. Dutch farmers just sprayed manure on a city hall. You're seeing that footage on your screen right now. And just as we saw in Canada, large groups of farmers are taking over city centers there. Here's what it looks like. It's a big story. It's gotten virtually no coverage in the United States, but we can learn a lot from what's happening in the Netherlands tonight. And to learn more, we want to speak to Eva Vlardingerbroek. She is a Dutch legal philosopher we've spoken to many times before. We're happy to see her again. Eva, thanks so much for coming on. So just summarize for us who are not familiar with your country, what exactly is this about and what do you think that it means? Well, very simple, Tucker. What this is about is the Dutch government stealing our farmers' land. And they're doing this under the guise of a made-up nitrogen crisis. And that is basically going to put most of these farmers completely out of business. And thankfully, the Dutch farmers aren't having it. So they're going out on the streets. They're blocking distribution centers. They've blocked the high roads. They are fighting back. And they're right to do so. These, this is their life's work. They're really at their wit's end. They're devastated by what the government is doing. And, well, it's very clear that the government is not doing this because of a nitrogen crisis. They're doing this because they want these farmers' land and they want it to house new immigrants. They also want it because the farmers are obviously standing in their way of the great reset plans that they have for us. So, yeah, farmers are hardworking, God-fearing, and especially self-sufficient people that are just standing in the way of their globalist agenda. And it's driving a lot of these farmers even to something like suicide. So, really, there's only one term that we can use for the things that our government under Premier Mark Rutte is doing right now, and that is communism. 
So messing with a food supply tends to cause food crises and then famines. You're seeing this in the developing world, thanks to climate activism in the war in Ukraine. Are normal Dutch citizens who aren't farmers worried about what happens when you shut the farms down? Absolutely. They understand it. No farmers, no food. And that's why the farmers have blocked these distribution centers, because within a matter of a couple of hours, we saw that the supermarkets were empty. And ordinary citizens understand this. The problem is that the state doesn't seem to understand this, or it's what they want. And the police have responded in an incredibly violent way. So as you guys have seen now, they have even shot at a 16-year-old boy. These are not things that you should see in free Western countries, especially no. not targeted towards peaceful protesters, but it's happening. And not just the Dutch people, everyone around the world, and especially you in America, should be supporting our Dutch farmers because, well, this could be happening to you. It's actually the very reason why I'm wearing this, this handkerchief right now. It's become the symbol of these farmers' resistance, and they're doing it so courageously, and they have the manpower to do it, so they really deserve your full support. We should be worried about the big things, and the food supply is the biggest thing. So th I appreciate that explanation. Even for our book, thanks so much for joining us. So as we told you at the outset, you already knew this, the Democratic Party was counting on the so-called Hispanic vote to stay in power forever, but no group has abandoned the Democratic Party faster or in larger numbers than Hispanic voters. Why? Well, the New York Times has a reason. It's because of, we're quoting far-right Latinas. Far-right Latinas? We wanted to find one, and we did. We'll talk to her straight ahead. Okay, we'll get back to Tucker in a few minutes. Uh, meanwhile, a tragic story about a right-wing political activist who apparently committed suicide at age 29. People who want to build infrastructure or make this into something that isn't just, you know, did you read the latest blog or listen to someone's podcast or live stream or whatever? And I feel like that's what's been just constantly missing is people who do the stuff that isn't like fun. And, and, you know, and a lot of that stuff, I mean, just constantly writing articles, most people kind of burn out. Like you kind of say what you can say writing, you know, 500 or 2000 word rants. And then you're just kind of like, all right, I've said it. I don't need you burn out because there's no actual development that's taking place. And we actually do need people who are either going to be in institutions of power and will keep their mouth shut and succeed um, and become... Yeah, you can be effective or you can speak freely, but uh, sometimes you can't, you can't do both. And uh, amazing story here in the Washington Post of all places about uh, the nation's most revered gay cop, Brett Parson. So he's a 53-year-old identified on a growler profile. It's a gay dating app, hookup app. As a 53-year-old in an open relationship, his job is listed as law enforcement officer. And his profile says, I like younger. Just a regular guy looking for the same, staying in Fort Lauderdale for the week. And so then they, they meet in a car at midnight and hook up. And police notice that something weird is going on. And so the, the guy's arrested and he has so many supporters, right? I don't think a life should be destroyed over one foolish event late one night, right? We, we've all gone out apparently to hook up with underage teenagers at uh, midnight who, who we just met online. So 
This is the Washington Post. So Florida, on the verge of passing a bill to ban teachers from discussing sexual orientation and gender identity, dubbed the Don't Say Gay Law by its opponents. Its supporters bandied about terms like grooming to create completely false, guys. This is completely false links between homosexuality and child abuse. Come on, guys. Child abuse is committed by people of all sexual orientations. Now, when it comes to the Catholic Church and priests, overwhelmingly, north of 95% of the victims are boys, right? Priests overwhelmingly are not molesting girls. But don't talk about that because you don't want to make the LGBTQ community look bad. And so uh, this uh, gay cop, all right, our nation's most revered gay cop, right? They fear that any attention to his arrest, being a sexual predator, that uh, it could hurt LGBTQ progress. And we don't want to do that, right? We don't want to stop the normalization of LGBTQ pride, right? And so this is a police officer leading cops out into LGBTQ uh, uh, marches, right? Every, every gay march needs, needs a bunch of cops coming along, apparently. Rich and powerful. <laughs> That's good. We need that. And we need people who are saying like, well, I might not actually be rich and powerful, but I'm actually very competent and we can professionalize things and make this work so that people who are doing this work and who are the best people, i.e. to be brutally frank here, not Martin Rojas and Devin Soche, are actually getting salaries and producing work and feel professional and, and have some degree of prestige conveyed upon them. That's what needs to happen. And I do, I mean, again, I, I think maybe call me, you know, call me cynical if you will, but like I've seen so many of these people that I just, it's like, I, I look at it, I'm just like, well, another one bites the dust. Another one did the thing that I have constantly be telling people not to do. <laughs> and another person who didn't really add anything has faced all of these terrible consequences. So anyway, I mean, this goes back to my own kind of prejudice where I just think things need to be centralized and, you know, they're more powerful when they're centralized. We don't need this. I mean, it was great in 2016, this like broad, everyone's got a podcast, everyone's a Twitter superstar. <laughs> excuse me but that went about as far as it could go so i i just i don't know go google that name um think about what i said and you know think about it in terms of your own personal life maybe that's not a temptation for you maybe you do want to be someone who's you know in the in the background or, or someone who mostly consumes right so i spend about 15 hours a week doing the most mundane volunteering I mean, I'm not usually spending most of that volunteering time picking up trash, but much of it is that equivalent. So for some people, there's a time and a place for podcasting and, and blogging, but much of what makes America great is just people working a job, building a family, taking care of their kids, getting educated, moving ahead in their career. We, we don't need more, more bloggers necessarily. Liberal call you racist? And you think to yourself, no, 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 I, I'm criticizing you, the white liberal. Racist! <laughs> Salarious! But it's their first and last defense, hiding behind other people of other ethnicities to push through their preferred policies. And on no subject is this more obvious than on immigration. For years now, journalists have told us that Hispanic voters, not that they've met any, love open borders. And if you don't, you're a racist. So all of a sudden, there's some cognitive dissonance going on because... Hispanic voters actually don't seem to love open borders. And that's why in overwhelmingly Hispanic districts, you're seeing Republicans getting elected who are promising to enforce immigration law. So the New York Times is extremely upset about this. And they're trying to figure out what exactly happened. These voters aren't as obedient 
as we thought they would be. They don't have the same attitudes that we do here in Williamsburg. Like, what the hell? And so they found a scapegoat. They just published an article with the headline, quote, the rise of the far-right Latina. Far-right Latina with, well, that's our kind of guest. One of those that they referred to is Cassie Garcia, who's running for Congress in Texas, and we are grateful that she's joining us tonight. Cassie Garcia, I don't know what a far-right Latina is, but I am, <laughs> I am glad. It's a badge of honor. The New York Times doesn't like you, and we are very happy to have you. So now they're attacking you because you don't have their views? Is that what's happening? Well, Tucker, thank you for having me on tonight. It's just absolutely ridiculous. The fact that the liberal media would call me a far-right Latina because I grew up in a conservative household on the border and I went to church. It's just absolutely ridiculous. Yet they praise AOC and the squad. Let me tell you, uh, they don't represent our values in South Texas. And the reason why I am running for Congress is to defend faith, family, and freedom. District 28 has been in Democrat control for 110 years. And the current incumbent, Henry Cuellar, uh, who says all the right things, has done absolutely nothing, nothing to secure ourselves border. In fact, I have received the endorsement for the National Border Patrol Council, who's always endorsed Henry Cuellar, but they've endorsed me in this race uh, for Congressional District 28. So, uh, I just think it's a little bit, I mean, do you think it's weird that some, you know, white liberal from the Upper West Side who went to Brown and sends his kids to Riverdale Country School gets to speak for Hispanic voters on the Mexican border in Texas? Like, where, where do they get the right to decide what you're allowed to believe? You know, what I'm, I'm representing the families and the communities of District 28, and they don't speak for me, the New York Times. Uh, yeah. The Democrat Party has left the Hispanic community. And in the Hispanic community, we care about a strong and secure border. You know, we, we, don't, we don't want open borders at all. And that's what the Democrat, Democrat Party it believes in, and we don't believe in that. Um, we we uh, believe in sovereign borders. And so that's why we're going to see more Democrats uh, vote uh, Republican come this November. We're going to see more Democrats walk away. Yeah. I mean, you're obviously an American, but I think even immigrants who just got here of any background don't want open borders. Why would you want to come to a country that's not really a country? Of course. Duh. Cassie Garcia, we're, we are glad to meet you. So thank you for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. So it turns out Joe Biden is selling maybe the single most valuable resource the American people own, and that's our energy. Taking oil from our strategic petroleum reserve and selling it to China. That and the war in Ukraine are pushing the world's food supply to near collapse. It's shocking what's happened. There's famine going on in Africa caused by all of this. So what's the media focused on? Are they writing that story? No, new testimony from January 6th. Watch. Explosive week for the January 6th committee from the damning new allegations, shocking new details surrounding that fateful day on January 6th. Fifth hearing of the January 6th committee we heard shocking testimony. This latest January 6th story came as a shock. The shocking testimony out of the surprise January 6th hearing. Such disturbing, sh shocking is not too strong a word. It's shocking, right? Shockwaves back in the United States after yesterday's January 6th hearing. With this new January 6th evidence that really is sending out shockwaves. Breaking news about the January 6th investigation is that the shocking testimony yeah, it was an insurrection. No, it wasn't. You're lying. Be quiet. Nobody cares. They're talking to themselves. This, at the very moment, we have food shortages in the United States of America. So nobody's watching this. During the January 6th committee hearings in mid-June, CNN recorded its worst ratings week since November of 2015. 
And polls confirm why. Nobody in America cares. We have massive problems, mostly economic problems, that are being completely ignored by the media. Kind of weird, maybe because they're not touched by those problems. According to Rasmussen, top voter issues are gas prices, inflation, the economy, and violent crime. Bachi Unger Sargon is the deputy opinion editor at Newsweek, and she joins us tonight. Bachi, thanks so much for coming on. So there should be, like, if you care about democracy or say you do and you're in the media, you should at least try to illuminate the issues that the people of your country care about. Why not look at a poll once in a while and cover that? But they don't. Why? So thank you so much for having me, Tucker, and thank you so much for leading the show with Jose Alba's very distressing story. Oh. It's so important, and you always get to the most important story of the day. Yesterday was another example of that. You know, you're, you're totally right. When you ask Americans in poll after poll, what are you most concerned about? They say the same four things over and over and over. The price of gas, the price of food and inflation, violent crime, and jobs. Now, this is not surprising. Two-thirds of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. Check. But when you ask journalists what are their top concerns, they say climate change, the war in Ukraine, January 6th, misinformation, right? There is zero overlap there. Why is that? I mean, it looks like it's a story about politics, but as you cover every night on your show, Tucker, that is a story about class. There is an enormous class divide in this country, and one class has the luxury to sit around obsessing over misinformation, and the other class is sitting at home wondering whether they should put their money towards putting meat on the table or gas in their car because they don't have enough money for both. Historically, societies that have a divide this vast between the people running everything and everybody else in their attitudes and their economic positions, those societies become very and dangerously unstable. Are you worried about that? I'm not because I have a lot of faith in the American people. I mean, polarization is a totally elite phenomenon and yes. Americans just don't buy it. And the sad thing is, is it would be bad enough if journalists were just ignoring violent crime. We're just ignoring the fact that regular Americans can't afford meat. But it's worse than that. They create a taboo around talking about these issues. If you say I am not OK with prosecutors siding with violent criminals against their victims, they call you racist. If you say, I am not okay with the fact that one in five American small businesses was decimated by these lockdowns, they call you a grandma killer. They have misunderstood their economic privilege as virtue, and that is unforgivable. That is so nice. They've misunderstood their economic privilege as virtue. If I had tattoos, that would be one of them. Batya, <laughs> great to see you tonight. Thank you very much. Thanks, Tucker. You may have heard of the Georgia Guidestones, sometimes called America's Stonehenge. Suddenly they're not there anymore. Why is that? We'll tell you next. So proud of Butya, a member of the tribe who's managed to, to break through and be one of the, the few Jews in the, the journalism industry, even rising to uh, deputy opinion editor of, of Newsweek. Like an incredible accomplishment, like breaking through, breaking, breaking walls, breaking down stereotypes. Because you're living your life, you know? You have a family, you wanna have a career, you wanna start a new business. Like, that's really good. Maybe some of you do want to say, I wanna be that serious professional person. I'm not doing this for e-fame. You know, I want to do the shit work. There's so much shit work. Do you know how boring it is to index a book? I mean, yeah, that kind of, you wanna do I've that difficult that. stuff and it's actually no contribute fun. so that something can grow and become professionalized. So anyway, just some thoughts on the situation. I don't know if you guys also have some. So this is a little commentary here from uh, Richard Spencer. I mean, these may be... Oh, I was going to say these. Go ahead, Brendan. Commenting oh, so on people getting over their skis. 
Yeah, and you might have joined a little bit late. Um, so I just see the names. Kid, there's a kid named Martin Rojas. He has died. Um, he worked for, he wrote for all these different webzines. He worked for Jared Taylor, apparently, and he just wrote all these blogs um, all over the place, hundreds. And um, I suspected suicide when I learned of it. And I, I did actually contact someone who knew him, who was friends with him, and that's what this person told me. And it just doesn't surprise me at all. He's 29 years old, uh, you know, at least ostensibly in good health. And it was sudden. It just came, you know, came out of the blue. And so he was a member of the Asatru uh, focus. Yes, that's another thing. So that has Kevin Deanna written all over it. We can talk about this, like, Isn't that Asatru folk assembly stuff or like Wolves of Finland or whatever. But yeah, he hung around in those circles. I mean, the kid, he's nice. He's very nerdy and very small. So it's just kind of funny to imagine him, you know, among bearded Vikings. But <laughs> it's just, I don't know. I mean, I just look at this and I'm just like, oh, my God. It's just, it's just kind of silly on some level. Yeah, they're not really an active group. I've never heard of them that, not often. Um, so Stephen McNallan is the leader of the Azadru Folk Assembly. Um, I like Stephen McNallan. He's a very, he's a nice man. And I think he also is a well-intentioned man. Um, he kind of has a cool background. I believe he was a um, prison guard or something. And he like has traveled around the world as kind of an adventurer type. You can kind of see how a, a badass Germanic paganism would appeal to him on some level, but he's also a literary person. I mean, I like him. The in two thousand two thousand uh, yeah two thousand ten when alternative right was started, I actually had Stephen McNallan write an article, like that, that was posted very early on of why I'm a pagan and so on. So he's a cool guy, but again, I don't. We could talk about Germanic paganism and, and the problems with that. Um, Kevin Deanna is a member of this like Wolves of Vinland, which I would have less good things to say about it. I mean, Kevin tried to drag me into that thing at one point. And it's just a bunch of, yeah, it's like street thugs and tattooed street thugs and their girlfriends, like yelling and the bonfire. I mean, cool on some level, but it's just ultimately really stupid. Yeah, they're like a Again, I'm in my mid forties now. I'm, I'm old and cynical. So take it with a grain of salt. I don't, you know, there's a, there's a time and place for that. There's a time and place to kind of let your hair down. But if that's all there is, it becomes a little less compelling. So we'll get back to Tucker in a minute as he comes out of commercial. But I'm reading this amazing book by a sociologist, Leah Greenfeld, called uh, Mind, Modernity, and Madness. And she makes this essential point that the freer the society, the freer the individual, the more likely they are to go mad. So the upper classes are more likely to go mad than the lower classes. Freer countries like the United States, at least, used to be much more likely to have very high rates of madness, chiefly things like schizophrenia and uh, bipolar, manic depressive uh, depression. And when you have someone like this in your family, it rips families apart. So according to various statistical analyses, you know, half of American families are being ripped apart by mental illness. And the key fact is with, with freedom, we have the opportunity to develop our own identity. But if we're not happy with what we've built, right? I'm a 56-year-old bachelor. That was not my life plan, right? I'm 56 years old, bachelor. I've never been able to sustain a romantic relationship longer than a year. I, I have no kids. There are many ways that my life has not turned out as I planned. And so this can drive you crazy, right? With freedom comes responsibility. And when you look around at people who you may think, oh, they're less talented than I am, or they're less intelligent than I am, or they, they don't work as hard as I do, why are they so much more successful? So envy is a burning emotion in every free society. 
all right, with, with freedom comes the possibility that you make really bad choices. An arrangement of stones in Georgia, known as the Georgia Guidestones, have stood in Elbert County, Georgia, for more than 40 years. Some call them the American Stonehenge. Now they're gone. What were they? Why were people upset by them? And where'd they go? Fox's Kevin Cork is on that story for us tonight. Hey, Kevin. Interesting story indeed, Tucker. The GBI, that's the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, has released a surveillance video in the hopes of finding those responsible for setting off an explosion at the Georgia Guidestones Monument, which is, as you point out, often referred to as America's Stonehenge. It's a 19-foot-high granite tourist attraction in Elberton, Georgia. It was damaged early Wednesday after, quote, unknown individuals detonated an explosive device. That according to the agency. And for safety reasons, we are told now that the structure has been completely demolished, again, according to the GBI, which is even tonight still on the hunt for the vandals. Now, you may recall the attraction actually gained a bit of attention back in May when Candace Taylor, she's a GOP gubernatorial candidate, suggested that the stones were satanic in nature, including a platform, part of her platform, that she wanted to get rid of these things. Today, she tweeted this, God is good all by himself. He can do anything he wants to do. And that includes striking down satanic guidestones. Very interesting indeed. By the way. Okay, we'll get back to Tucker if he says uh, something interesting. But uh, I want to get back to this main point about the more freedom, the more mental problems you have. And so when you develop an identity, if you're committed to your religion, if you're committed to your family, if you're committed to your job, if you're committed to a career path, if you're committed to your community, if you're committed to your stamp club, if you're committed to your book club, if you're committed to your neighborhood watch, you're much less likely to have mental health problems. All right. So as we get older, we usually develop a more sturdy identity and our range of options kind of diminishes. Right. Too many choices becomes bewildering and it uh, it throws you. Right. And so particularly people who don't have, say, a religious identity, an ethnic identity, a professional identity, they're much more likely to get into trouble. And so what's what's behind, I think, this this stream of mass shootings by just you know evil delusional people is that these are losers all right they're not successful people they're people who don't have friends now this latest shooter in chicago in highland park his dad vouched for him so that he could buy weapons and this is a red flag state and yet this shooter was able to pass through four different background checks to, to buy weapons so i think if you sign so that your son can buy a weapon and then your son goes out and commits an evil deed you should have to pay part of the price right his father should have to serve one-fifth or one-tenth of the sentence of his son and people should not be allowed to buy or own weapons i think unless you can have 10 law-abiding citizens vouch for you if you're unable to muster at least 10 people to vouch for you i don't think you you deserve to uh, own a weapon right i mean privileges right privileges should come with responsibilities and the most important responsibility is to be able to maintain relationships well, that's a weird story. <laughs> I yeah, must say, Kevin say. Cork. <laughs> Thank you. You bet. Well, on to another weird story, the story of Boris Johnson. So after the 2016 referendum on Brexit, you remember, Johnson took over. He became prime minister, ultimately, then secured Britain's departure from the European Union, which still hasn't fully happened. Then Johnson got covid and seemed to change completely. It seemed to emasculate him. In any case, he seemed to lose control of his own government. He imposed several lockdowns, even as government officials partied in London. 
And then there were a bunch of scandals. And then Boris Johnson said things that contradicted each other. And Boris Johnson got very weird. Anyway, today, Boris Johnson announced he's resigning as prime minister. It is clearly now the will of the parliamentary Conservative Party that there should be a new leader of that party and therefore a new prime minister. The herd instinct is powerful. When the herd moves, it moves. And my friends, in politics, no one is remotely indispensable. And I want you to know how sad I am to be giving up the best job in the world. But them's the breaks. A man of enormous charm and promise, beclowning himself, wasting it all. What is this exactly? What happened here? Well, a man who knows Boris Johnson well is his former advisor, Thomas Corbett Dillon. Thomas, thanks so much for joining us tonight. So, what, Good to be here. First, the obvious question, what, why did Boris Johnson resign as prime minister? What's, I don't fully understand this. Is there a well, specific reason? It, it, it's chaos, Tucker. It really is. Um, you know, the, the, the short of the story is that we elected Tucker, uh, we elected Boris to be the British Trump. You know, he was going to shake up the system. He was going to deliver Brexit. He was going to stick it to the elites. But he very quickly got sucked in by the sort of globalist agenda. You know, he spent a lot of time sucking up to Macron and Merkel that he forgot he's a conservative. You know, as you said, he went very hard on lockdown, very hard on vaccines. Um, he became woke. And then he, uh, you know, fully signed up to this uh, Greta Thunberg idea of the world is ending, which is not what the conservative people voted for. You know, Boris was elected by a, a very large group of working class voters that it was the first time they'd ever voted for a conservative politician. And these people want simple things, more jobs, lower tax, tough on crime, tough on the border and tough on our enemies. But he got sucked into this globalist agenda that just wasn't what the people wanted. So eventually the, uh, the MPs started listening to the people on the ground and realized that this was not the leader for them anymore. He so humiliated himself and without offense to you, your country, I think. Um, that you almost feel like there was something else going on here. Do you, uh, why would he have been sucked into the most conventional, dumb kind of lifestyle liberalism when he's obviously a very smart guy? Yeah, he, he, he sort of, you know, fell in with that elite crowd and he was, you know, traveling the world. He did a lot of time trying to save Ukraine and all of these things. Uh, what seems to happen is the government just lost their way. They didn't know what they were trying to do. Um, they didn't know what the policies were. They, they, they tried to, you know, do this global Britain thing. But, the, you know, we have huge issues in the UK, as, as America has too, and very similar yes. things with, um, you know, fuel crisis and inflation and all these things. That, that is what the people want, and, and that's not what he was delivering anymore. Um, so it's a shame because he had a lot of potential. We were very excited when he, uh, you know, he had everything. He even had the hair like Trump, but it, it just didn't come through in the end. So sad. The whole thing is so, and also weird. I hope you get someone better. It doesn't sound like you're going to. But Thomas, I appreciate your, com <laughs> your coming on tonight with that analysis. Thanks so much. Cheers. Thank you. So we've talked a lot about Taylor Lorenz. She is a journalist at the Washington Post. Check out her Twitter feed if you want to know what she's like. She's a very fragile person. But today she took it to a whole new level. Now, just to put it in context, imagine if you showed up at a public event dressed as Napoleon. The full outfit, the bicorn hat, the whole thing talking about taking over the world. Men with nets would come from the side to pull you off. Well, that's almost what Taylor Lorenz did today. She showed up for an on-camera interview Wearing some kind of weird face gear. Was she going to rob a liquor store? We didn't know. Here's what it looked like. Oh, there it is right there. 
And the most amazing thing was this took place in Washington. Not a single person said anything about it. So you can show up with this weird thing on your face and everyone acts like it's totally normal. She needs some time off. Well, we've got something we want to get to the bottom of. We'll tell you what it is next. Look, maybe she had COVID, right? Maybe she was getting over COVID a week, 10 days later. You can apparently still be infectious with COVID uh, two weeks later. Maybe she only had the very best of intentions. All right, Mind Modernity Madness. This book by Leah Greenfeld from 2013 just blew my mind. So she quotes all these great doctors in the 17th, 18th, 19th century who make the point the more civilized the society, the more mad people, the more primitive the society, the fewer mad people. And politics since the 19th century is increasingly supplied exciting causes for mental illness. You'll see a disproportionate number of mentally ill people becoming political activists. So we lived in the age of nationalism for about 200 years now. So religion kind of dominated Europe until about the 18th century. And then nationalism has dominated most of the world since the 19th century. And nationalism means the dignity of the individual because you're all part of the nation. All right. So that implies the dignity of the individual. It applies a certain level of, of uh, equality before the law and the, an ethos that you're all in it together. Now, that leads to the development of competitiveness, leads to the development of capitalism. It leads to the development of rights, because if individuals matter, then they, they deserve certain rights and dignity. Right? And this is all new. This all starts in England in the 16th century. But along with the open society, you have the pervasiveness of anomi, meaning a breakdown of all moral authority, because as people are choosing their identities, people now choosing to be male or female, gay or straight, religious or atheist, all right, with all the choices that we now have for your identity, this becomes overwhelming for many people, and they frequently just give up any moral standards whatsoever, all right? So the the formation of your own individual identity, right, becomes your own responsibility under nationalism. And that becomes too much a problem, too much of a challenge for, for many people, and they go mad, right? And so schizophrenia is when you read more into reality than is really there. And autism is when you are less likely to pick up on social cues. So my rule for dating is never date a woman who is, you know, worse than I am at reading social cues. Now, that almost never happens. Only on rare occasions have I dated a woman who's worse than I am at uh, reading social cues. But some of the most common symptoms of, of mental illness are things like social maladjustment. You feel chronically uncomfortable in your environment. You feel chronically uncomfortable with yourself. And your sense of self oscillates between self-loathing and delusions of grandeur. So I've experienced this where I feel like I'm a piece of feces that the world revolves around, right? And so sometimes I'm stuck on the self-loathing portion. Sometimes I get stuck on the, the, the megalomania portion. And this can deteriorate into a total and terrifying sense of a complete loss of, of self, right? The more freedom I had, the more mad I got. So this mental 
health problem shapes the causes for which people mobilize. All right. This profoundly affects the nature of our politics. Madness makes for ideological activism. Right? Most people who are political political activists are a little bit delusional. They are inspired by things that are not really there. All right. And so it used to be prior to the 16th, 17th century, when, when you had murder and torture and rape, it was done on rational basis. But since the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century in the age of nationalism, a lot of horrible things, a lot of mass murder has been done on, on the basis of a delusion. Wow. Prager University is taking out ads on Tucker Carlson. I, I didn't expect this. I, I moved to Los Angeles in 1988 to go to UCLA. And you settle in to dine. Your son is watching something, but you think it must be fine. You know it's only kids' shows, so you have some peace of mind. But as you eat the roasted goose, your little sport insists... Hey, Dad, did you know America's racist? Your mind goes numb, your skin turns pale, and your heart aches with fear. Your child is being filled with lies. The babe you once held dear. But in that shocking moment, a man pops into frame. Could it be George Washington, here to save your child's brain? He snatched the screen and changed the thing, the something that is true. It's an app with shows for kids. They call it PragerU. There's content for your child's mind to fight the leftist lies. And if you give your child a chance to watch and think and grow, they might burst forth like Washington, a true American hero. Donate to PragerU today and help us teach more kids classic American values. Make your tax-deductible donation at PragerU.com. Wow. Throughout the ages, humans have devoted their brains and backsides to the evolution of the work chair, hoping that one day sitting down would actually... Wow, PragerU with a big ad and a uh, well-done ad on Tucker Carlson. Okay, so I think we all instinctively understand this, that much of our politics today either on the left or the right and the particularly the further you go from the mainstream the more likely it is that the people who are behind radical political activism are mentally ill and the mental illness leads them into activism the activism temporarily acts as a salve for their illness so i became extremely religious for, for a few years because i was so afraid of how out of control my, my sex life was was becoming so I was a little bit mad, moderately mad. I, I thought religion and God could cure me. Uh, no, it uh, took 12-step programs. But ideological politics, all right, ideology has become a major factor behind mass murder. It used to be that murder was primarily done on a rational, self-interested basis. But since the 19th century, murder and other horrible acts of, of violence uh, undertaken out of ideology which often largely springs from mental illness all right the these ideologies often lack the remotest connection to personal experience they lack connection to objective interests right so let's get a little bit more from Tucker. no one knows what happened to them there are reports tonight that a certain state center from Rhode Island was seen in the area. We just received this. We can't verify its authenticity. The news show, though, and we want to bring you the news as we get it. So here's the picture we received. And the theory is the stones were twerked into pebbles, and now we're just a pile of gravel. Again, we can't confirm that, but we wanted at least to raise the possibility that that's what happened. We're on that story for tomorrow night. But for now, the great Jason Chaffetz sitting in for Sean Hannity. We want to throw to him.
Hey, Jason. Thanks, Tucker. Do appreciate it. All right. Well, welcome to this special edition of Hannity. I'm Jason Chaffetz in tonight for Sean. And we begin with Joe Biden, who is now in free fall, figuratively and literally. Biden's first two years in office have been a, so catastrophic that even the president's biggest fans are sounding the alarm. For example, one New York Times article highlighted concerns inside the Democratic Party that Biden is full of excuses. Quote, his approach simply does not meet the moment, leaving him struggling to inspire his supporters and allies to action. Meanwhile, political, Politico quoted deeply frustrated Democrats who referred to Biden as a fool and hopelessly naive. They want Biden to be more aggressive on abortion rights and gun control and packing the court. But in reality, Joe can barely get through a simple speech without taking some pretty major detours. Watch this. I wasn't supposed I'm going to do this. They told me not to. I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to tell a story. I went over to see Pope John, excuse me, Pope Benedict. We're going to spare you the details. I promise you it's okay. Tonight, amid his own struggles, the president invited the smartest guy he knows to the White House to help sort things out. None other than Hunter Biden has been pictured at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue all week. This as Hunter continues to be the focus of several major investigations including a criminal money laundering probe tied to the Biden family business, as well as growing calls from Senators Johnson and Grassley, who want the Department of Justice to investigate Joe Biden's funding of his son's participation in a Russian prostitution ring and an ongoing investigation into the House, into Hunter's finances that is now being stonewalled by the administration and its allies. Wonder why. Here now with more is the ranking member on the House Judiciary Committee, Jim Jordan, along with. OK, I think I'll take a break there. I'll pass on, on hearing from Jim Jordan. But if there's anything interesting on Hannity's show, I'll cut to it. So as you instinctively realize, much of our politics, particularly on the more extreme ends, is driven by mental illness. And it's driven in the large majority of cases by, by an ideology that lacks the remotest connection to the personal experience and the objective interests of the participants, all right? But they are acting out because they feel greatly uncomfortable with themselves and with the world around them, right? And what is at the core of this mental illness? It's the schizophrenic delusion. It's the loss of understanding between the symbolic nature of human reality and, and confusing the difference between symbols and what they refer to. And so symbols themselves become objective reality. And so all revolutions of the modern age are kind of of this kind. And they're almost all driven by people from the upper classes, right? It's not the workers who drive revolution, right? It's not people who are activated by specific pragmatic interests that drive revolution, right? Rather, you get this desire to change a society radically on the base of some vaguely defined ideal, which is really an expression of their schizophrenia and mental illness. So the ideal is vague, but the destructive violent impulse is clearly focused, right? So actual people get killed because of what they represent rather than because of what they do. So the core ideal and the enemy which these revolutionary movements target are delusions, Right? And they emerge in mentally ill minds. 
and the overwhelming majority of people who carry the messages of you know ideological revolution right they come from the mild to the mildly to the extremely mentally ill i mean you see this in in pictures of antifa and uh, a lot of other political activists you can just look at them and you see there's something really wrong there right that they're clearly using politics as therapy for their ills right and at the same time they have this strange combination of absolute self-loathing combined with a periodic sense that they're a prophet a genius you know a god someone who, who should be the next fuhrer now, different types of nationalisms favor different types of self-medication through social and political activism. So you have individualist nationalism dominating in places like England, Australia, and the United States. So this encourages individual activism. And when this goes mad, it gets inspired into delusionally inspired violent crimes like uh, Jack the Ripper, or in the United States, assassinations and school shootings. So... Individualist nationalism discourages violent collective activism. You're not going to get something like the Holocaust in a dominantly Anglo nation. So individualist nations have delusional, inspired collective action, but it is usually nonviolent, and it has many characteristics which distinguish it from what happens in collectivist nations like Germany or Japan. So even as people in America participate in collective social and political action, they retain a very strong sense of their individuality. That they are separate from the collective. They do not just meld with it. Right? They are acting as individuals. And when they suffer from a lack of meaning, and a lack of purpose, and a lack of identity in their life, they each turn against the society that makes them. So American political activism tends to be very anti-American. English political activism tends to be very anti-English. Australian political activism tends to be very anti-Australian. And the specific problems right, that, that they're addressing are usually not related to direct concrete interests that they and their loved ones have, but it's a lack of feeling at home, a lack of feeling comfortable in themselves and in their community. So... With freedom comes the responsibility of doing something significant with your life, and many people are simply not up for it. So when your life is not cutting it, when you are not uh, competing with the people around you, when you're not proud of what you have accomplished, living in reality is very painful, and it becomes increasingly incentivized and much more pleasant to check out from reality and live in a world of delusion. And as this builds and builds... People find it much more comfortable to spend more and more time in a disassociated state, which frequently leads to significant mental illness. Now, collectivist nations, all right? We're talking France, we're talking Germany, we're talking Russia, right? We're talking Japan and, and China, right? So here you get collectivist political activism where people want to lose their individual identity and blame their problems, generally speaking, on the other. So when you have nations that first experienced nationalism without having accomplished anything, so we're talking about Germany in the early 19th century, we're talking about Russia in the 19th century, we're talking about Arab states in the 20th century, they tend to be the nationalism that is most obsessed with blood and soil. So if you have concrete accomplishments, then you are very proud of being English, of being American, of being French. If you don't have concrete accomplishments, by your people, then you have to base your nationalism on things that are not concrete. You can't point to 
these significant achievements. So you say, oh, what makes us special is our, is our blood. It's our mystical connection to the land. So generally speaking, when you encounter people who are primarily blood and soil nationalists, they are losers, right? So just because you believe, say, in civic nationalism or that America is an idea, that doesn't have to preclude other types of nationalism. So there are many different types of nationalism. So plenty of people in America who are intellectuals believe America is an idea. Now, I don't really agree with that, but that doesn't preclude other forms of American national identity. So you can tell a person, oh, you're stupid. America is not an idea. It's a concrete people with, with very specific interests. But obviously, that's not a bridge to connection with people. So you can connect with people. Yeah, America is an idea. It's also a very concrete people. The United States of America could not have been built by people different from the English, predominantly English, and then Germans and, and Scandinavians who did build this country. Right? They created a very specific Anglo identity for the country. And all of our founding institutions were developed by Anglos. And so now other people move into America and they bring their own gifts, which are frequently different from, from the gifts of Anglos, but the founding institutions of the country are dominantly Anglo. But when America's demographics change, America changes. All right. So the United States Constitution and the United States political process and the United States legal process was built primarily for Englishmen who had moved to America. And so Things like the Pledge of Allegiance, taking a pledge, that's taken very seriously in Anglo countries. But for many other people, taking a pledge is just a scam. It's, it's meaningless, right? So the political forms and institutions that were developed by Englishmen in America, they don't necessarily work as well as America's demographics change. So the United States Constitution and the United States political and legal process very effective when the country was dominantly Anglo, but now we have a different demographic. And so it should be no surprising, no surprise that our institutions and, and our culture and, and the ways that we do things has to change to accommodate changes in demographics. And like the, the Midsummer crew, maybe? <laughs> yeah. Although the, uh, the actual Midsummer movie, those were a metaphor for Jewish people, but I, I take your point. Yes. Hey, Richard, can you hear me? Yeah. Don't you think there's some value, at least, in like having a creative out, like an outlook, like an output? Um. Yeah. Like writing these uh, on VR or something like that. Yeah, but you have to understand that these people aren't being terribly creative. And secondly, it's like you have entered the arena in some way. You're not writing poetry on your own. And all of these people want, they, they, again, they want to have their cake and eat it too. They want to be, they want to achieve some kind of e-celeb fame. And it, they're not just like writing something on their own. I mean, they're, they're entering this arena and they have certain motives. And I understand why people can do this, but, you know, I, again, I am at this point, I am extremely cynical and I am also kind of brutally pragmatic to some degree. It's like, we don't need another blog. I don't, I don't know what to say. No one, the world does not need another block. Everything of that tier of stuff has already been written a hundred times. And I get it. Like, I'm not totally against it. Like if someone wants to do that or they have something unique to say, but like, there's very little, I mean, like Ed Dutton gets paid like a, uh, not that much when you, when you look at it, I don't get paid that much by doing all this stuff. So there's no professionalization. And it's just all this, just, it's like this endless amateur hour. And that cannot go anywhere. And again, 
I, I wouldn't be this kind of harsh and cynical if so many people didn't think that, that like this represents the strength of the movement or something. You know, like we don't need the mainstream media or institutions. We just need like a million live streamers or something. That is so naive. I can't even put it into words. We actually need institutions that can support professionals. And if the amateurs, if all they're doing is like being a part-time e-celeb, I'm just, I'm done with it. And again, it doesn't lead to anything good. If you, if you achieve a modicum of fame or in Martin's case, you just produce this, you know, you're a mill, then they will dox you. Okay, let's uh, check in with the Hannity show. Please. There are tough times ahead. Everyone that is, except for the White House press secretary, who seems to think our economy is historically good. Watch this. When you look at inflation, when we look at where we are economically, and we are in a strong, uh, we are stronger economically than we have been uh, in history. Forget record high gas prices, historic levels of inflation, and negative growth, because this administration is on a mission to save the planet. Watch this. The agenda for uh, climate is facing headwinds, given what we are seeing right now with respect to oil, the, you know, the crimp in oil supply and the price of gas. Obviously, that is a, a, a challenge when we are also trying to accelerate this movement toward clean. But we are pursuing these very ambitious goals, most ambitious in history. Joining us now with reaction, former State Department spokesperson Morgan Ortegas and Fox News contributors. Okay, we'll come back when they bring Stephen Miller on. So, terrific book, Mind, Modernity and Madness by Leah Greenfeld. And she talks about how collective nationalisms like the French, the Russians, the Germans, the, the Japanese, the Chinese, they, they encourage violent collective action. What also encourages violence is the sense of national inferiority, which is common characteristic of ethnic nationalisms, right? If you have concrete accomplishments that you can be proud of, that, that your people, the English, the French, the Americans, the Australians, things that they have done, then you're going to be proud of your people for their accomplishments. But if your people don't have substantial accomplishments, then you're much more likely to believe in blood and soil nationalism because who can say that your blood and that your soil is inferior to any other blood or any other soil? But the sense of national inferiority, which many Arabs have, right, tends to encourage delusionally motivated, violent, xenophobic collective activism. This is a therapy for the psychological and the mental ravages of, of feeling left behind and this then builds mental disease on its own right so people have problems forming their own individual identity and then they are not satisfied with their own national identity and so they want to seek comfort from stoking their personal resentments right and you see this kind of political activism all through the middle east and then when we import many of these people they bring that anger and resentment to america so what we have here is essentially envy, right? Existential envy, people who are ashamed of their national self, of their national identity, of being a member of one's nation. And their only way of keeping with this is the destruction of other nations, right? Because how can the, the Arab nations around Israel live at peace when Israel is so far outcompeting them? Now, Israel's got an average IQ of around 95, and the Arab nations around Israel have an average IQ around 82. So there's no way they're going to be able to effectively compete with Israel. So 
Israel is becoming more prosperous, more rich. They are making new innovations. They are striding ahead in the world. They are competitive, while the Arab nations around Israel, such as the Palestinian state and Egypt and, and Jordan and Lebanon, are incredibly dysfunctional. And so that must be incredibly galling to have a Jewish state in your midst, which is out-competing you. So your own self-loathing, personal and national, gets reoriented onto others, particularly those who succeed. And anger and violence that in certain circumstances would lead to suicide get diverted into terrorism. All right, let's get a little bit more here from Richard Spencer. And previously, Richard, you've spoken about the alt-right being sort of like a head without a body, in a sense. And um, this, you know, we have a lot of, you know, there are a lot of, you know, more intelligent than the average bear sorts of people involved in this movement. And so everybody might have a natural inclination to write at some level and things like that. But it does lead to this, this kind of broader weakness in which, yeah, a head without a body isn't going to live for very long. And the alt-right didn't live for very long. We can't be just all chiefs and no Indians. But people, right. you know, we have this, you know, dynamic in which people who are fundamentally, I think, well-intentioned, you know, however, there, there are many problems yes. there. Yeah, there could be problems there, but they're fundamentally well-intentioned and they end up sacrificing the most for the least political and cultural impact. And maybe we have to be kind of, we should search our own souls about maybe the impact of the culture of celebrity, which has definitely impacted all of us to some extent. People are, you know, praised for being famous for being famous. And, you know, in a way you can achieve a sort of fame by, you know, putting your name on some edgy blog posts and things like that. But you need to kind of, you know, check yourself before you wreck yourself and ask yourself, well, how much, am I, how much is the movement really gaining by what I'm doing? How much is the cause really gaining? And would the, and if I think I have something to contribute, am I really sacrificing too much for too little gain here, even in the big picture of just the movement, let alone our own personal happiness and prosperity? Well put, yes, that is, that is definitely what I'm saying. Um, and I do think that the e-celeb fame, I, I do think that there are really serious issues with that. And we, we've talked about that kind of in previous shows, maybe before you joined up, Chris, but, um, you know, like some of these girls who are e-famous, who live stream all the time, like Shoe on Head or Brit Brittany Venti or who are some of the other ones? I mean, Lauren Southern is like basically like this. It's like, well, Lauren Southern maybe a little bit less so, but it's or like, yeah, I mean, I could go into Lauren Southern in a little bit. I mean, she's slightly different because she, Lauren Southern, if she had done things differently, could have been a Fox News check. Because she is articulate and good looking. Okay, have you guys seen this amazing commercial? Here. Democrats like to say that no one needs an AR-15 for self-defense. That no one could possibly need all 30 rounds. But when this rifle is the only thing standing between your family and a dozen angry Democrats in clan hoods, you just might need that semi-automatic all 30 rounds. Democrats like to say that no one needs an AR-15. That's, wow. You don't see an ad like that. That's for, for a, a black uh, conservative running for Congress. All right, good things going on in hey, Texas. Texas Governor Greg Abbott announced he's taking a major unprecedented step to try and rein in Biden's border crisis. Our own Bill Malusion is in Eagle Pass, Texas tonight with all the details. Bill. Jason, good evening to you. Earlier today, Texas Governor Greg Abbott issued an executive order which authorizes Texas state troopers and the Texas National Guard to apprehend illegal immigrants and return them to ports of entry 
on the U.S. side of the border. Now, up until this point, when Texas DPS has encountered illegal immigrants, what typically happens is uh, they will arrest them and then just hand them off to Border Patrol, hand them off to the federal government. In this executive order, Texas Governor Greg Abbott is invoking Article 4, Section 4 of the U.S. Constitution, which essentially guarantees states federal protection from an invasion. Now, Governor Abbott is not going as far as calling this an invasion. He's just citing that in the Constitution. What he is doing is he is allowing Texas law enforcement to apprehend illegal immigrants and then bring them down here to the border where they will be dropped off at ports of entry again on the U.S. side of the border. Why does he feel the need to do this? Take a look at this video. Massive groups of migrants continue inundating the state of Texas. This was a single massive group of nearly 500 migrants here in Eagle Pass, mostly Cubans and Venezuelans who know they're not going to be expelled via Title 42, so they know if they can just get to the U.S., uh, they will step foot on U.S. soil and likely be released into the country. Take a listen to what Governor Abbott himself had to say about the need for this executive order. President Biden ran for president on the basis of uh, having open border policies. Uh, and what Texas is doing uh, is disrupting what they wanted to achieve. Uh, they want open border policies. They want all these people coming across the border. They do not want to follow or to enforce the immigration laws of the United States of America. Uh, and Texas is stepping up, trying to compel the Biden administration to actually follow the laws passed by the United States Congress. Uh, and we will continue uh, to press that cause. And again, it's important to point out, the state of Texas is not going to be deporting illegal immigrants back to Mexico. All they're going to be doing is... Okay, we'll keep an eye on that show. If they bring Stephen Miller on, want to cross to it. Let's hear from uh, So when people Kenneth go Brown. from libertarian and they start putting these labels on themselves, because what is a label? A label is a heuristic. Like if I identify with label, it's my tribe. And if your tribe is filled with, it's a small group of people dispersed across the internet, people who do not have any power. It, it, it's, a, it's the island of misfit toys. People who are similarly alienated, people who don't have a lot of good things happening in their life, so they go to escapism. I know something about escapism on a personal level because I struggle with it. I struggle with escapism. You could criticize my YouTube channel as a form of escapism where, like, I'm not a college professor. I'm not, like, going into a classroom and teaching hundreds of kids in a lecture hall. I'd probably prefer that on some level. Maybe I would still do YouTube on the side, but it's like, isn't YouTube a substitute for that real thing? Something to be aware of. Something to, like, you know, even if it means I'm still going to make YouTube videos, it's still something to just, like, be honest about. So even in this, which I do think is, is can be productive... I think it can be productive to make YouTube videos, but there is the danger that I'm, I'm engaging in a kind of escape fantasy where this is my power process and I feel good and I feel important, even if I'm actually not helping people. So we have to be aware of that. So when you're engaging in political consumption, you have to be very aware that this can be a hedonistic, solipsistic fantasy of consumerism, of passive, slavish mentality. You're not a slave to me. I don't control you. You're a slave to your fear, your fear of going into the real world and doing real things. So you're taking on these esoteric labels that insulate you from reality make you feel important, make you feel knowledgeable, make you feel special, because you got a special label. Anarcho-communist, anarcho-syndicalist, <laughs> you know, all these different people. They take on these weird forms, and then they get engaged in this weird kind of infighting. A lot of it's based on, like, personality conflicts. And people get very esoteric with it. And I think it's a disease, and it's one that I want to speak out against. It's one I've spoken out against before. It's one that I'm going to speak out against again. And I want to frame it in terms of the radical friendship extremism. What I mean by that is people want friendship, right? We all agree on that. Like, certainly there are antisocial people, but I'd say 99% of people at least secretly want friends, even if they want to admit it. And I think the majority of men statistically have less friends than they'd like, and the friends they do have, it's not as deep as they'd like. They want deep, quality relationships. 
And we have a lack of that because, in my opinion, relationships, friendships are born out of shared experience. And the, the deepest, most intimate form of experience has to be in real life. It can't be over the internet. So when I say radical friendship, extremism, I'm using those terms kind of tongue in cheek, but also referencing this reality, the fear that people have of getting off the internet. It's like, it's radical and it's extreme to say like, oh, okay, you've got nothing going on for you in your life. Maybe you should leave. Like I've done that. I've done that in my life where I've been in a position where materially I was satisfying all my needs. Like materially I was in a great situation, but I said like, I'm not, I don't really have quality real life relationships in the way I want. So then I just traveled around the country a bunch of times and I tried to meet people in real life. That to me, a lot of people say, oh, that's radical. That's extreme. Like, Okay, so people who gather on this channel, they're primarily united by a similar sense of humor and a similar outlook on life and similar values. So there aren't that many places in the world where you can gather with people and share the jokes and share the banter and share the arguments that we have on this channel. So yeah, you know, real life friendships, obviously superior to online friendships, but sometimes it's not really a big deal. Right. I've got really good friends who I've met in person a dozen times, but those, you know, in-person interactions didn't really add that much to our friendship. Our friendship, you know, primarily takes place, you know, over the telephone or over Zoom or over email. All right. And we're united by a similar sense of humor and, and similar values. And so it's hard to find people with a similar outlook on life. So we don't need to get everything from everyone, right? There, there are friends that you pray with. There are other friends that you play softball with. There are other friends that you work with. And there are other friends that you talk politics with. There are other friends you talk religion with. And there are other friends that you joke around with. And so after, say, a long, exhausting day engaging with other people at work, like checking into your favorite live stream can be a perfectly healthy activity as long as you don't feel gross afterward. Right. A lot of live streams, they encourage the worst aspects of people. People tend to say really dark things that they wouldn't say face to face. People tend to be, be vicious in a way that they wouldn't be face to face. People tend to be solipsistic, meaning self-absorbed, narcissistic, megalomaniacal, megalomaniacal in ways that they wouldn't be able to get away with in in face-to-face -face life, all right? So if there's a live stream, and probably many live streams do bring out the worst in you, but I mean, I know I try to create a live stream that you're not going to hate yourself afterward, right? It, it may do absolutely nothing for you. You may not feel elevated, stimulated. You may not even get a laugh. I would hope most of the time I don't leave you feeling icky. So if there's a good live stream, a good online community, all right, that, that can be a wonderful supplement to you know, regular workaday world where you have to constantly bite your tongue. So let's check out Hannity here. This granted state police and National Guard troops authority to return any migrants they encounter to the southern border. But Joe Biden is apparently not happy that Texas is trying to fix the crisis he worked so hard to create. And now the Department of Justice is investigating Operation Lone Star for potential civil rights violations. Here now with uh, Reaction, our former senior advisor to President Trump, Stephen Miller, and Fox News contributor, Sarah Carter. Uh, Stephen, I wanna talk to, talk to you first because you, uh, working with Donald Trump, had done yeoman's work in actually securing and locking down the border. It was moving in the right direction, it was more safe. But Biden comes in and behind the scenes, he brought in uh, Obama's former regulatory czar, a guy named Cass Sunstein, to undo everything that you've done so far 
And the Department of Justice is trying to untangle the, the prohibitions and the lockdown of what you actually accomplished in the Trump administration. Explain that further to people. Yes, this is a very crucial point. The current crisis, the calamity playing out on our border hour after hour, day after day, is the result of a planned, purposeful, and premeditated crusade carried out by the Biden administration. In 2020, President Trump had in place a brilliant series of domestic reforms and interlocking international agreements that allowed us to deport any illegal alien from any country at any time for any reason whatsoever without delay. That included remain in Mexico, safe third agreements, asylum bars, Title 42 as just a few examples of what President Trump had ingeniously put into place. Joe Biden set about dismantling each and every one of these policies that sealed the border and kept us safe for the sole purpose of aiding and abetting the largest wave of illegal immigration in human history. And so it is literally true. It is actually the case that Joe Biden is complicit with global smuggling and global trafficking on the largest scale in human history. It, it really is stunning. And, and Sarah, you've spent a lot of time down on the border. Um, I, I know Greg Abbott, uh, the governor, is doing everything he possibly can. That He's trying to do the Fed's job. But talk to us about the human toll of what's really going down there on the border, Sarah. Well, it's, it's, it's a tragedy all the way around. It's a tragedy for Americans. It's a humanitarian crisis at the border for those that are being trafficked. Uh, it is a tragedy for, for our country and for those being moved into this country. Just let me give you an example here. We have this year alone, by mid-June, more than 1.5 million encounters. And that was up to mid-June. Uh, mid so we're looking at around 1.6 million already. It's going to surpass probably 2 million by this fiscal year of people that were actually encountered. Over 800,000, Jason, listen to this, over 800,000 known gotaways. Those are people who came into our country that will never even know who they are or why they're here. Over 50 terrorists, people connected to terrorist organizations have been apprehended. Others, they could have just disappeared into the fabric of our nation and we'll just have to wait and see if there's an attack or we'll just have to wait and see if they are arrested. There is no way to explain Steve. what is happening down at that border. There've been over 500 deaths as well. And this is yeah. the reason why Governor Greg Abbott is fighting so hard and he's only doing what he can do and he's throwing his hands up in the air because the president right. won't do his job. In fact, the president's suit against Greg Abbott, having the DOJ investigate Operation Lone Star goes to show you that this is exactly what the president wants. They want chaos at the border and they want to hold the people who are trying to protect our country accountable for crimes that they don't even commit instead of holding the criminals accountable who are harming the migrants and who are harming our country. And I think that we need to make that so very clear. So, Stephen, where, millions of people are coming across the border. Where are they all going to go? Where are they all going to live? Well, we know from the very secret flights that this network has exposed. And from my own sources throughout the Department of Homeland Security, that they are being resettled 
in every single state all across this country. Some of it is being done directly by the federal government, others indirectly through non-governmental organizations with the support, cooperation, and in many cases, financing of the federal government. And what that means is that you are going to see, and you are in fact now seeing, School districts across the country being completely overwhelmed, needing translators, needing extra resources with no funding to pay for it. Our hospital system crashing, uncompensated care soaring through the roof. That means higher premiums for you and for your family. Our police departments are completely overwhelmed by the influx. And of course, the drugs that are coming across as a result of this and the drug dealers and drug traffickers that are entering our communities unimpeded are slaughtering our citizens by the tens of thousands, each of their deaths preventable, but for this lawless president. Sarah and uh, Stephen, appreciate your... Well, the National Justice Party clowns are worried about getting doxxed. MAGA boomers are engaging in treason like January 6th, putting their lives on the line and getting arrested en masse. So who are the real Nazis and who are merely LARPing as such? It'd be one thing if these guys denounced the January 6th mayhem, right? Talking about the National Justice Party, but instead they cheated on and they identified with it. Yet why weren't they there? If they are the Nazis, if they are the unadulterated expressions of white resentment and rage, why avoid such decisive moments? So while the Right Stuff crew, the TRS crew, were at home saying the N-word and calling out the Jews on their podcasts, boomer cucks clutching copies of the United States Constitution were literally invading the Capitol on January 6th and attempting to install their leader as dictator. What I find entertaining about the National Justice Party is despite the Nazi lopping stuff, they are far less radical than mainstream Republicans in Trump's base. <laughs> That's Richard Spencer. Or could cease to exist. So it, it actually is like it's it is facing off death in that sense. You- so Richard has a theory that the United States Constitution is an algorithm and that Jews are an algorithm. Right. Not not a distinct people, but essentially a linguistic community. United States. Now, of course, if every human being died or whatever, okay, great it. But like the United States is kind of eternal in the way that it's conceived in the sense that it doesn't actually matter. You know, like everyone, half of the country could die. Half of the country could be replaced by immigrants or whatever. Um, we could have a radically different culture. We could have a Muslim culture. We could have an atheist culture, et cetera. It just doesn't matter. America will go on because it is an algorithm that goes on. Much like the Jewish people, like whether Jews are a race, I, I think this is actually one of the real, like, fatal misconceptions of white nationalists or something. This notion that, like, look, race just simply means who are your ancestors. And so Ashkenazi Jews have a great deal of genetic similarity. 80% of Jews in the world are Ashkenazi. So, as a shorthand, yeah, you can call Jews a race. Really, all race means is extended family. Like the Jews are this foreign race among us or something. Um, I think that's actually pretty dubious, to be honest. Um, the Jews are the word. They are the people of the... If race has any meaning and, and it means extended family, all right, Ashkenazi Jews fit it as just as well as, say, West Africans or Northeast Asians. Look, in the beginning was the word. And like... Look, uh, Ethiopian Jews have the book, but they're very distinctive from Ashkenazi Jews, right? Ethiopian Jews, what, average IQ around 70, they have the Torah. 
right? They have all the books of the Jewish tradition. They built very different communities than Ashkenazi Jews with an average IQ of around 110. So now it's not primarily a linguistic community. Right? Most Jews don't speak the same language. Right? It's not primarily about the book. It's not primarily about the Torah. It's the combination of a very particular people with particular practices developed in particular environments. Right? So you give a different people the Torah, and they are going to evolve a very different civilization. So, yeah, the environment affects the people. The people create a culture in consonance with the environment and a linguistic community, but it's a particular genetic group that gets things going. All right, everything else flows downstream from genetics. Judaism will continue even if every Jew dies. I mean, much like America will continue. And don't, don't take that the wrong way. No, it, it won't. All right, if... if 100% of Jews in the world end up being Falashian Jews, Ethiopian Jews. Judaism will be very different, and Jewish influence will be significantly reduced. Way. Um, much like America could continue, because it is an algorithmic linguistic concept. It isn't, it's never been about the people. And that, That's nonsense. All right, what, what's the, the common linguistic concept that uh, Falashian Jews and Ashkenazi Jews have in common? Falashian Jews meaning Ethiopian Jews and regular European Jews, Ashkenazi Jews, have virtually nothing in common, even though they, they sh could speak Hebrew, even though they have the Torah, even though they have the, the Talmud, even though they have the ongoing rabbinic tradition, even though they keep the Sabbath and they keep kosher, but they have virtually nothing in common practically. Right-wingers want to be like, well, we used to be slave owners, and like the 1790 Naturalization Act was so based. like It was like whites-only club, you know, whatever. That, that's just all irrelevant. <laughs> in the face of the real nature of this country, which is a linguistic. I mean, they could start World War III in a few minutes. The real nature of the United States of America is not linguistic. Right? The real nature of the United States of America is a very particular people at a particular time and place, meaning that what they did was contingent, contingent depending upon a very particular people operating in a particular environment at a particular point in time. Without those factors, we would not have the United States of America. Be with that sentiment, you know, like you don't have the right to take down this country. Um, but like that, that sentiment is kind of like a, what is it? What is the right term? Like a principled exception or something like it. It's a non-essential quality of the United States. Um, I think it's kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, like trying to, you know, everything. Yeah. I mean, white people have no responsibility whatsoever. And just inherently evil, like every, you know, sure, there might be some nice ones out there, but like, they're all secretly like trying to, you know, bring in more refugees who will rape white women. Like, they're, they're just like sadistically evil, like unnecessarily so or something. As a, again, as opposed to viewing them, which is the correct way to viewing them, which is that they are like, they're a link. Yes, they're an ethnic group and Ashkenazis are effectively a European ethnic group, but it's like, they're an, it, the, the issue is that algorithmic quality to them. It's the, it's the linguistic quality of Judaism that has done this and that makes them problematic. You know, it's not necessarily them. And, you know, whatever, like, problems we might have with Jews of, like, oh, they're pushy or they're obsessed with money. It's all just kind of non-essential when it comes to the real issue, which are these, like, linguistic injunctions of, of, of a way to do something. Like, it is those injunctions in the Bible that you can always bring up to any, like, Christian nationalist, like, accept the stranger. You know, and you also have this thing. Meek shall inherit the earth. It's all that stuff. It's in their minds. Words, words, words. 
Yeah, I, I don't think it's uh, primarily a linguistic it's issue. It's on you, in a way. Go vote harder. I'm going to say this, guys. Um, I am just personally, I'm going to put a bookmark in it. Um, I have my kids tonight, so they've they've had to entertain themselves for an hour and a half, and uh, they usually do a good job job at that. Um, they uh, will go kind of read books, or they've actually figured out something that's really good, which is books. There are a lot of good YouTube shows where you read Spencer books to three like, kids? a woman or something will read a children's book on YouTube. It's actually quality. My daughter is seven and a half, and she can kind of handle this stuff. But anyway, I'm going to go see how they're doing. And um, if you guys want to talk longer, I can make someone else a host. But otherwise, I think this is actually a pretty amazing discussion. <laughs> we covered a lot of ground. Um, I need to do something more on this. Uh, yeah, just the algorithmic nature of America. I, I think it's, it's something that's kind of obvious in a way, but I don't think it, it's something that's obvious, but then no one takes it seriously. Like they, they don't really question it, but they, they all kind of agree with it. And I don't think anyone would disagree with that concept either. Like, but they've not really looked at the- I disagree with it. America is not primarily- a, a linguistic culture is primarily a particular people developing institutions at a particular time and place in a particular environment. Implications of that. So I, I think some more needs to be done on that. Can I make a really short? Okay, got some clip requests here. So let's let's go to the chat suggestions. The guy saying, the guy giving that that speech. I have no clue. I feel like I remember that. I, I vaguely remember that. Um, so the language thing, just because of the demographic shift, um, this also, I mean, all of these things are sort of woven together um, because another big factor, I didn't mention it, um, but it's one of his bullet points, like at the beginning of uh, the second to last chapter is the split between elites and, um, and the public. Hispanic, like regular folk, a lot of them at least want to adopt English, but the elites are pushing for more of a bifurcation, like the Canadian model. Um, so, so this stuff all sort of ties together, and um, it's not really clear where it's headed. But that's kind of the, um, the kind of the point is um, that a lot of what happens will will be determined by how white Americans decide to identify. Um, I don't know how you guys feel about that. I'm honestly uh, not sure. I mean, about like what I mean. So, so one of the things he mentions is like, and th this is where I thought he was sort of downplaying a, a perspective that I uh, thought was legitimate or that I thought he would even share. Um, I think to a certain extent we have to, and this is where I feel like they've tricked us. Um, we're in, in, in a in a certain way like we have to identify as white, um, as this like white racial group um, that maybe has some grievances or wants some special treatment. Okay, so this is a discussion of Samuel Huntington book. Who are we? Samuel Huntington was very instrumental in the starting of the website Vida. Um, just because of affirmative action and other things like that, special treatments um, for other groups. Um, and if we don't, that it sort of feels like we're damned if we do, damned if we don't sometimes. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. But you yeah. would say that we should what? Organize around Catholicism? Um, well, you know, he also has a, a big thing in a large section in the book about how kind of America defined itself against Catholics for 200 years. Um, but I guess my, in these circles, controversial opinion is that white identity is kind of a losing hand because white people don't really think of themselves as white. That's the, that's the main problem. Um, like good fucking luck organizing as whites, I think. Right. Yeah. Um, but even though religiosity has gone down, I think a large part of that is because uh, an ignorance of metaphysics. And so of course our, our next, uh, you know, metaphysics 101 will change everything in the world. Um, <laughs> 
but uh, I think I think in order to to have influence with metaphysics, I think we'd have to just make this like a metaphysics show and just push that as hard as possible. Like, okay, this is uh, Josh Neal here. Mode of change. So it's it's really important to be honest about that process and and own that. Like, yeah, I am dissatisfied. I I fired up a YouTube account because I really didn't like uh, the direction that my life was going or the future that I saw for this country. Uh, but to to hang to to leave it there, like ah, well, you know. You know this kind of responsabilizing thing, like, well, this is just about you, man. Like, I see someone's making Jordan Peterson jokes in the in the in the chat, but that's like really emblematic of that. It's like this cosmic dissatisfaction, uh, which ultimately is the responsible of the people who are lording over you. Well, that's you know, you just need to improve yourself a little bit more, learn a new language, learn a new skill. Um, okay, yeah, and it's not like that's wrong, which is important to say. Like, these things are not factually wrong, but they're irrelevant. It's like, okay, uh, I am pushing forward and I am doing these things and I am trying to make my life better within my sphere of influence, but that has its limits and. You know, when you push up against those limits is, I think, when the, the radical light switch hits on, it's like, oh, there's a bigger thing happening. It's bigger than me. Uh, and my best efforts might actually be stymied by it. And maybe I need to organize. Maybe there needs to be some new consensus uh, that has to be developed. So, um, yeah, the point of being a radical to me is, is you know, it's not about highfalutin, high hot takes and being contrarian or being an edgelord uh, or being a rabble rouser, uh, although very often those things <laughs> take place uh, in the life of, of a, you know, a radically minded person. But it's about, you know, moral seriousness. Uh, and, you know, so so part of uh, like a nascent nationalist movement is that moral seriousness. And if there's no ability to this is a thing they used to say all the time during the Obama administration. Obama's the adult in the room, which is such a condescending phrase. But again, it's like it's not wrong. It's a little misplaced. You know, it is our responsibility to be the quote adult in the room and be the ones who can make those those hard decisions. And uh, I heard someone say earlier, I don't remember, maybe it was Borzoi, that he, he, he's not satisfied with a Europeanizing of America. Uh, I don't, I'm not going to say this in probably the way you meant it, but I actually am very much in favor of a, of a Europeanized America. You know, I think, you know, for Americans, I, I, I agree with that. I, I know what the point you're referring to. Uh, uh, I can yeah. elaborate that later. But I actually do. But yeah, please. If you, if you wouldn't mind, but uh, oh, just to put a, I'll put a bow on it uh, and kick it back to you guys, you know, for America, for American people to live, uh, America has to die. <laughs> yes. You know, like the big, 100%. Like, like Lacan. Okay. If America dies, place to live. It's not a bad country. Die. It's an incredible place to live. It's an incredible country. And I'm done apologizing for it. If you think that loving your country, being patriotic for your country means that you're ignoring any of the problems it might've had, then you're wrong. You can love something and say, I'm really proud to be an American without constantly having to sit there and apologize for the problems that it has had and that it currently has. Wait, so you can acknowledge the problems that it has, but you can't apologize for it? Wait, so you're... You're allowed to acknowledge that America still has problems, but you can't do you can't do anything about it, or like literally, you just can't apologize. Like you can still protest against them as long as you're not apologizing. I'm curious, what does that mean? Yeah, slavery was bad, but I'm not sorry. I'm tired of apologizing for slavery. It's been five thousand years. Get over it. The fact that we are constantly having to apologize alongside being proud of something is ridiculous. Number two is go shooting. It is. Oh, hold on, that stupid thought aside. Isn't it? Um, isn't it interesting how um. So much of conservative politics just seems to be outraged at the idea of having to apologize when nobody asks them to apologize. Apology in this case is like a euphemistic replacement for acknowledge that anything is wrong at all, you know? They feel, the archetypal conservative feels emasculated when they tie their identity to a group and then it is pointed out to them that that group has problems with it, you know? Because the conservative, but necessarily an authoritarian and conformist mind state, um, they tie themselves to their race, their country, so any attack on either of those things becomes an attack against them and they treat it as such. Celebrate the Second Amendment. We are very blessed to live in a country that arms its citizens. The fact that we are able to have that Second Amendment, to own guns, so that the government isn't the only one with those weapons, is an amazing thing. If you want to hear more about this, actually, I would recommend checking out JP Sears' channel. He recently did a video where he apologized for previously being in favor of gun control and now being pro- uh, Okay, if you're recommending JP Sears... Uh, I, I... Uh, I... 
gun. And I think he really described what happened to not apologizing. Okay why it's so important that we as citizens have access to weapons but also outside of the really practical reasons why we should have guns why citizens need to be armed which again check out his video on that i'll link it in the description box below it's really yeah uh, i'm just, i can't i can't take any more uh luke where can i publish an article on the havana syndrome cases do you recommend uns review i don't recommend uns review i think there's a lot of a lot of a lot of disquieting stuff on UN's review. I don't disrecommend it either, but there, there are many places where you can publish your opinion. So there's some, definitely some good stuff on UN's review, but uh, there's also so much junk on UN's review. Uh, there was a question earlier. Do I think that Donald Trump really wanted Mike Pence to be physically stopped from certifying the election? I think Donald Trump's just a fighter, right? This is just his instinct. He... He ultimately went peacefully. He did not organize the January 6th riot, right, to, to go, you know, overrun the, the Capitol. So Donald Trump was always going to fight. And so happened that his incendiary and unfortunate rhetoric and unfortunate tactics contesting the election after he clearly lost, you know, led some of his devoted followers to move in a very self-destructive direction. But no, I don't think uh, Trump wanted Mike Pence uh, physically stopped or or certainly not harmed. But but Trump was always going to try absolutely everything he could. People can kill you. Like you're, how can you trust people like that? How do they trust you? And it's like maybe it's radical, maybe it's extreme, but that's that might be something that's necessary for some people. Other people, you just plug yourself into an existing community. And I I don't believe that people should be like inventing religions. Okay. If you're like, well, I'm, I'm like a Christian, but I disagree with certain fundamental doctrines. And I think like we should redo Christianity in my version. Um, I don't think that's a good way to make friends. And I think like on some level, I think it is, um, you, you, you have to be on the level of Jesus Christ basically, or Martin Luther. Like you have to be a great man of history. If you think you're going to remake religion and change religion and whatever, like you, you, you have to really believe that you're like a world historical figure. And you know, maybe at some point in the future, I'll, I'll go into some kind of Nietzschean derangement syndrome where I, I'm like, uh, you know, I become, what do they call it? I get dementia or I become schizophrenic and I start believing like, yeah, I'm the chosen one. You know, if that happens, that uh, this is a, this is a warning video to my future audience. Be aware, be aware, but. Okay. So I've been reading a fascinating book, right? It's called the star chamber of Stanford, meaning Stanford university on the secret trial and the invisible persecution of a Stanford Law Fellow. So this guy, Ronnie Goodman, he is developing a, a mammoth work on conservative victimology. So every in-group identity pretty much has a victimology, right? How, how you've been screwed over by outgroups. I mean, Jews have this, Christians have it, uh, many whites have it, uh, Mexicans often have it, uh, Jews, Japanese, Chinese, like most strongly identifying in-groups have, have a victimology. But most of their problems are because of what outsiders have been doing to them. So this guy was at Stanford University and he got a scholarship, right, to, to do his, his work. And he disappointed his liberal left-wing faculty members and it basically ended his his would-be career as a legal scholar. But he manages to maintain a sense of perspective. So he's not 
personally out to hurt his his colleagues and his professors. So he says, if my colleagues were, were guilty of anything, it was simply being creatures of their place and time. They were agents of the dominant dispensation and of their identity, their civilizational identity. So their interests and prejudices were broadly those of the new class, the chattering class, the knowledge class, the cognitive elite, right? They, they were regular liberals. And the author makes the point that he thought he'd be superior to his circumstances, such that they would yield to me and not I to them. And I don't know about you, but I've kind of gone through life with a vast overestimation of my own fortitude, of my own abilities, of my, my own strategies, my own wisdom, all right? I've gone through life fancying that, yeah, I'm going to be superior to my circumstances. And my circumstances are going to yield to me and not I to them. And uh, that's not normally what happens, all right? Normally, the situation is the boss. Normally, I am not the boss. You're not the boss. Donald Trump's not the boss. The situation is the boss. So Victor Davis Hanson, he came quite eagerly to the defense of uh, the Tea Party and the, the Sarah Palin crowds for resenting liberals for having developed and entrenched this unofficial social hierarchy, whereby liberals are seen as self-aware, reflective, and cosmopolitan, while conservatives are seen as benighted, parochial, and authoritarian, and socially denigrated, right? Exposed to the scorn and derision of the dominant liberal culture. So when liberals advance this unspoken agenda, they, of course, contradict their own professed commitment to equality, tolerance, and openness. They vilify conservatives, just as the conservatives stand accused of vilifying blacks, gays, and other minorities. Now, the liberal elite tend to be so privileged, they never need to confront their own hypocrisies. They have seized the high ground in culture. They dominate Hollywood, academia, the courts, the nonprofits, the bureaucracies, public schools, corporate human resource departments, right? Liberals command the high ground in culture. And from there, they malign conservatives as mindlessly reactionary, as Nazis, as pathological, right? And liberals tend to speak with great contempt for the ordinary heartfelt values of regular ordinary Americans, who, from a liberal perspective, must be discredited by any means necessary. So liberalism isn't merely a set of policies. It's not merely a set of principles. It is a total cultural ethos. And it encroaches itself further and further every year upon the lives of ordinary Americans. So liberalism is in power, whether its politicians are elected or not. So current state of left-wing liberalism is beyond politics. It's a tyrant that dominates our lives in countless ways, great and small, and which is essentially incapable of being overthrown. So conservatives feel perennially under the heel of the liberal jackboot. And why is that? So foundation of left liberal thought is that, you know, white male heterosexual privilege, you know, just blinds white male heterosexuals to our pervasive you know, subterranean bigotries, right? And, and we think that just being white male and heterosexual, this is just neutral. This is just natural. This is just the ineluctable fabric of things. But is it possible that liberals themselves are blind the social inequality 
from which conservatives claim that they suffer. So maybe liberals suffer from conservophobia, right? So according to liberal left thought, racism, sexism, homophobia need not be overt or conscious, right? These bigotries operate below the threshold of awareness, according to liberal thinkers, right? They, they operate on some kind of insidious structural level that outruns the beliefs and the intentions of individuals. Well, what about the possibility of an anti-conservative bigotry that works along similar lines in the high grounds of our culture and in our bureaucracies and foundations? If there can be structural racism, why can there not be structural liberalism that oppresses conservatives despite their formal political equality? So the left is using critical theory in its ceaseless battles with racism and sexism and lookism and ageism and homophobia, right? So Ronnie Goodman is developing a critical theory of the right that would deconstruct the left in ways that would mirror the left wing's deconstruction of wider society and especially of conservatives. Why not lay out a conservative grievance? So he talks about the relationship between a faculty advisor and an academic job seeker. It's akin to that between a great power and a small client state. So you have a great power like the United States of America, you have a small client state like New Zealand. Right, it's the academic job seeker who's seeking tangible material benefits from the alliance, a tenure-track tenure job. And it's usually the faculty advisor's phone calls to colleagues at other schools that separates a resume from a stack of hundreds. Now, the faculty advisor has an interest in expending these efforts because the empowerment of the client state redounds to the prestige and the prominence of the great power of the faculty advisor. So the more Stanford Law graduates are teaching at law schools, particularly illustrious ones, the stronger becomes Stanford's standing in competition with other great powers, such as Yale, Harvard, and Chicago. So when Stanford wins, so does its faculty. So there are three great law schools in America right now. It's Harvard, Yale, Stanford. Now, Ronnie Goldman, in developing his analysis of conservative victimology, he summarized for a class the views of Amy Wax. So Amy Wax noted that conservatives are particularly ill-equipped to debate same-sex marriage because the idea of just being equal, right, treating everyone equal, having marriage equality, right, that's really easy to argue for. And conservatives have these badly articulated apprehensions about the perils of same-sex marriage that seem completely unfounded to anyone who's not a traditionalist, seems like. So conservatives fear that we're going to have an erosion and an unraveling of our society, right? That we may have these subtle shifts in, more, in, in our culture, in our mores, in what's considered right and wrong that would develop from normalizing homosexuality. So traditional values are scorned by our elites frequently, but they are vital to the moral identities of regular Americans. Now, same-sex marriage may not threaten heterosexual marriage in any direct, obvious way, but cumulatively, from a conservative's perspective, it's seen as eroding the whole frameworks of moral meaning that sustain our society and that sustain our individual lives. Now, liberals regard same-sex marriage as a rational extension their universalistic commitment to equality. And so they can sign reservations about same-sex marriage to the, the moral dustbin, just like discussed with miscegenation. So 
conservatives tend to be much less concerned with uh, moral syllogisms, with philosophical syllogisms about universal principles. Instead, conservatives are attuned to what called logic fails to capture, right? The subtle, often irrational springs of human motivation that precariously undergird our social cooperation, right? These often irrational springs of human motivation do not necessarily respect the abstractions of universalist thinking and liberal rationalism, but they are still real. Now, the left just dismisses these lines of argument as ridiculous. But society is fragile. And when you tear, tear down things such as the traditional family, all right, from, from a traditionalist perspective, we tend to have great fear about what comes next. That is a little more from Kenneth Brown. You know, and I guess that can happen to people, right? But the truth is that those individuals are like prophets and they're very special, they're very unique people, not because they're necessarily smarter than everybody else, but it's hard to really describe. Goethe goes into what makes a person a genius. And I think that's probably a related con uh, concept. Like there are these very unique factors that constitute the experience. And I don't think it's purely genetically and determined. That. I think it is a huge degree, your environment and epigenetic and how all those things interact with each other. But it's such a, um, you know, there, there's something very unique. It's hard. It's, it's kind of like a pearl, you know, it's a pearl or a diamond. It's something rare. And so. So our friend Ricardo went on the Stephen James show. That's my suspicion. That's a great question. Because um, he has him on, doesn't he? They've actually something like 100 dislikes. <laughs> they all came and just brigaded that video. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Well, dude, I, I don't really. Ralph is the right reaction guy, right? The one they like would Claire would feud with as well. Yeah, the Indian guy. Yeah, dude, that guy was. I went on a show one time. He was here. Him and his whole crew were just the absolute worst. That I mean, Brenda? It's, yeah. I mean, there's so many scumbags out here. And, and, uh, I don't know. The, the, AA, the AA stuff, I don't really know what direction he's going, man, because it's like, you know, he's got the pagans on now and he's got the nerds. Talking about We should do like a breakdown yeah. of like who is most, who has, who is most likely to never have a woman in their entire life, like amongst <laughs> like prudentialists, Ryan Prudentialist. Turner. Uh, <laughs> hey, is Turnip, right? Is he the son of uh, that guy? Is he, is he, um, what's his name? libertarian guy who has like five kids and so oh, 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 oh. is he one of his sons that's my suspicion that's a great question um because he has him on doesn't he they've actually been in the same room unless i'm not seeing it right in that like i mean maybe they, maybe they could be neighbors or i don't know maybe he's his son but it's like I, I was listening to some episode and Charlemagne goes the problem with america is that people like ryan turnipseed are not in charge and i'm like what the fuck <laughs> ryan turnipseed of all people <laughs> he's 18 years old well, they've all like just turned 18 yeah. to fight club yeah. i mean I, it's like listen i mean i think i can't I think that, like, obviously the fact that we talk about politics and are interested in this kind of stuff, like, is nerdy on its own level. But there is something about, like, they just, that whole crew is just um, so nebbish and so bookish. And yeah. I, I call it Jewish nerdism. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's, I, yeah, it's I, true. You can I, never that's be content. I, I, mean, never... I don't mean that in, a, in an offensive way. I, 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 I mean, Jews are great at it. And, but it, that, yeah, intellectual. That's kind of like, what yeah. I think it is. Yeah, right, it's, it's over-intellectualism. Like... Yeah, it's like, it's like they helpful, talk, isn't it, on the internet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they want to talk about, they always want to talk about, um, you know, like how these ideas, I, I mean, ideas matter and like they're fun for their own sake. But like this idea that like we're going to hash out what the future is going to be like on this show, you know what I mean, is is <laughs> stupid and masturbatory. It's it's not that, it's like, it's the thing that I really didn't like about um, like Keith Woods and Joel Davis oh, and, and, and Samster <laughs> and these characters like the, um, yeah. that are like the, the, the like, I, let's call them the Neo-Nietzscheans or something. Like the, the Richard Spencer philosophy circle, and like that I is still so have a soft spot for Richard. I've got to be honest. I, I do, I do, because he's he's very entertaining. 
he's had a lot he of is. charisma and so it's like even when he says i kind of the- like how he's going against the old outright to be honest kind of like how he, he everything he tweets is like just to trigger people who use following isn't it <laughs> yeah well it's like when he bashes the alt right it's like don't you fucking realize that you are forever like it's on you you are the leader of that like when people say alt right they think richard spencer and for richard spencer to like denounce the alt right it's it's not even possible in a way because we're whatever bizarre, richard does whatever richard does is the alt right you know what i'm saying like if the alt right is liberal now but so anyway but he yeah i do like i do like that he challenges things because he at least makes you think think i don't know He's, you gotta have the other did you hear right? the recent did you hear the recent thing luke was playing uh, which was uh, like uh, one of his private i think you have to be on his sub stack or something to actually hear it so oh, oh, I, started Dennis, luke I started i started to listen to that i didn't make it all the way what was uh, anything good well yeah what was interesting what luke picked up on uh was that he, he said in that that what he actually cares about it's one of these discussions with his followers uh, where he brings them on maybe it's a twitter space i don't know where it comes from but um so what he actually cares about is uh, like the future of the Aryan man. Oh so yeah, he like yeah. revealed himself again, you know. Which for the last few years he's since he's been following Biden and becoming a liberal, uh, he's well, it turned it, a new it, leaf. It, it makes sense in that, like, you know, he's he's all about the EU. He's all about like the white ethno state or the white super ethno state. You know what I mean? I mean, it's well, that's the old Richard, but it's the first I've heard of it in a long time. Well, it, it's it's the old Richard. I guess it was white, and now it's Aryan, and it sort of passed through that like. <laughs> Apo- there, well, there was the, the Mark Brahmin, the Apollonian stage. I guess that's still ongoing, but it's like we're gonna, you know, oh, rediscover God, that, that is really crazy, paganism. Sorry. I don't yeah. understand what they're doing. I gotta say though, I wish I had a trust fund so that I could like just fully engage with like a vanity project of that scale, you know what <laughs> I mean? like that. Yes, yeah, that would be cool. It would be. Isn't really- he something like twenty million pounds in debt though from this court? You can never be content. You can never be happy with the victories that come about for us. You have to always keep pushing. You have to always have the mindset that, okay, this is great, but this does not go far enough. We have to move on to the next thing. Things have gotten so completely out of control as far as licentiousness is concerned that we need to start to roll things back in order to begin to restore order. And yes, that might look like uh, rolling back the rights rights of women over the past hundred years. That's probably going to look exactly like that to most people, especially liberals. But that is what is needed to be done. There's something next on the horizon because gay marriage is going to be going away. Contraceptives are going to be going away. Anal sex, you 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 know, the anal sex that you like to have, that's going to be going away as well. And many other things are going to be going away because there is a true rise of Christian nationalism in this country. Okay, so that's on Right Wing Watch, right? They, they wanted to Welcome show to that Fight Club. To, think to that Zelensky is a joke and that about, democracy is a joke. And when you have the multi-party democracy in the most corrupt country in Europe... Okay, let's get a little uh, E. Michael Jones here. Ominous quasi-genocidal statements about why they're doing it. So that's my rebuttal. Thank you so much. And uh, I'm going to leave the microphone to Dr. Jones. And I want to ask everyone in the audience, I want to hear from you as well. Tell me if you're enjoying this format and if this is something that you might want to do more of in the future. Dr. Jones, please go ahead. Uh, I'm trying, I'm trying, this is confusing. So I'm just trying to get to some type of clarity here, uh, given the positions, the positions that we have. So the, my question is, are, are Ukrainians white? Uh, do you want me to answer that? Uh, yeah, yes, they're, 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 they're European people. Yes, they're white people. Okay. Are Russians white? Yes. Well, what's what's the conflict? I mean, why why are you urging white people to fight other white people then? Uh, doesn't doesn't I, this contradict what you just said? No, that statement no, I just no, read. No, no, it doesn't. Because the statement that I was uh, you were reading is talking about the context of a white nationalist movement in the West, uh, where we're trying to build white consciousness in America, and uh, the, uh, the these these old world ethnic identities, uh, North and South Europe debates, uh, cultural debates, religious debates, things like that are irrelevant. Now. 
I do believe that there are distinct white peoples, obviously, and that the best nation, uh, best nations are ones that are ethnically defined white nations. Uh, just because I have a expansive understanding of white brotherhood, and I wish that white peoples would stick together around the world, uh, it's simply the truth that there's been a long history of whites fighting whites, and oftentimes one party is clearly in the wrong. Uh, and I, in, in terms of the inter-white fights that have taken place over hundreds and thousands of years, I tend to side, for, uh, side with the peoples who are fighting for their own ethnic self-determination, their own place in the sun against the empires that wish to absorb them, dominate them. So in this case, I, I think it's possible on the grounds of uh, believing in nationalism, and specifically ethnic nationalism, to say that the Russians are in the wrong in this particular battle, and that nationalists who want to see a Europe where every ethnic group, every people has its own sovereign homeland, we need to oppose the imperialism that the, the Russians are engaged in here. Uh, and and that's, that's not contradictory to the basic uh, definition of ethno-nationalism as I've laid out in my various writings. Uh, what about American imperialism? American imperialism is a bad thing too. Uh, that's, what, that's what I mean by the gay disco. So Ukraine is caught in the middle here between two forces, the forces promoting the, American, the gay disco, which is the American empire, and the force opposing the gay disco, which is Russia. And Ukraine is in the middle. So how are we going? So both of them are white. So race has no relevance here. Okay. White nationalism has no relevance here. So well, what is, what is the relevant issue then? Since race is not the relevant issue. Or let me, let me back up from that. I, I, want to, I want to answer that question, but let me back up. I ask you another question. Are Jews white? No, they don't think of themselves as white. And therefore, we shouldn't think of them as white. Uh, they're a group unto themselves. They have their own agenda. 95% uh, of Jews in America consider themselves white. Jews overwhelmingly choose to live in white neighborhoods. And they're largely hostile uh, to, to whites. Uh, at best, they're indifferent to our interests. Uh, that, that's not, not true. Jews have more favorable views on whites than any other racial group in America. Survival. But are, are Jews in control of the Ukraine right now? Depends. Uh, I would well, say the president is Jewish. The president is Jewish. The most powerful people, the richest people in Ukraine are definitely Jewish. So it's a uh, Jewish issue then? I don't think it's a Jewish issue entirely because there are Jews on all sides here that are exercising power. Uh, and therefore, I think in a way, they're irrelevant. Uh, it's not a battle between Jews and non-Jews here. It's a battle between different oligarchies that are rife with Jews uh, in, in positions of great influence. Uh, that's what's the same across the board here. What's different here the, the difference that matters is the difference between one people, namely the Ukrainians, who have their own distinct identity and their own distinct state, and other groups that are trying to uh, invade and conquer them. That, I, I think, is the relevant conflict here. The Jews are on all sides of this issue, but are, uh, as they often are. They, they hedge their bets by being on all sides of these issues. Now, do the Ukrainians think who are fighting, uh, such as the, uh, the, the person that Brody mentioned today, who's also a friend of mine who died, uh, are the Ukrainians who took up arms against this invasion fighting for their Jewish president? No, they're fighting for their homeland. Uh, if the United States were invaded tomorrow, there'd be many people who would go and pick up guns and go into battle, and they would think uh, you were being disingenuous if you were to say, what, you're fighting for Chucky e. Schumer? You're fighting for uh, Joe Biden? No, no. Uh, these sort of differences are set aside when your homeland is invaded. Uh, I think for the, most part, but for the most part, I think sensible nationalistic Ukrainians think that Zelensky is a joke and that democracy is a joke. And when you have de multi-party democracy in the most corrupt country in Europe, you're going to get a Zelensky. Uh, but we cannot admit to the, to, the, to the premise that seems to be sneaking into a lot of Western commentary on this, that you don't deserve to have an independent country if there are bad things going on there. What, there's money laundering in your country? You can't have an independent country. I'm sorry, put that gun down. Uh, you know, that, that's absurd. That's a form of, it's, it's basically a form of the same kind of liberal, internationalist, universalist uh, interventionism that says, well, we should go out and make the world safe for democracy. Uh, you can't have a, you can't have 
a sovereign nation if there are any bad things happening in it. You can't have a sovereign nation if there are any Jews in it. Uh, these are false premises, and I, I think they're somewhat irrelevant to the battle on the ground, which is the battle between patriotic people protecting their homeland, and yes, saddled with a joke president and a corrupt system. But you know, they prefer the, they would prefer to have the ability to improve their own country rather than lose it entirely. Okay, let's get a little bit of Laura Ingram here tonight. Globalists are on the run. That's the focus of tonight's angle. They told us it would be wonderful. I believe we can make our economy even stronger and make open trade an even greater force for peace and prosperity in the new century. Keeping America competitive requires us to open more markets for all. I believe the process of globalization is here to stay. There are enormous benefits to be gained from that global integration. And they trash the populist opposition. Donald Trump is a populist, and populism can be a very dangerous tool. They look to ride the anger, not provide the answer, and that's the problem. The larger problem is a populist, racist, know-nothing movement that is fundamentally inconsistent with democracy. But that was all wishful thinking. From supply chain nightmares to food and fuel shortages to pointless wars, massive refugee crises, the wheels are slowly coming off the globalization train. Now, the media hates to report on this, but... One of the big stories playing out over the summer is the rise of the freedom movement. I'm talking about normal people around the world who are pushing back on the globalist agenda that's essentially dominated our politics since the 1990s. Now, too often we're told that it's Americans. They're the only ones who have concerns about globalization and what it means for our culture and our economy and our way of life. But around the world, working people are now pushing back against a system that is making a small sliver of the population very rich while harming the interests of the vast majority. So if I told you, for example, that farmers who are furious about high costs and regulations were marching against government climate fanatics, I don't know, you probably think it was happening somewhere in rural America. But as we reported last night, it's happening in the Netherlands. The farmers want a stable future, a normal stable future. They buy the farm and they are gone. You told me earlier that they, uh, they have no future and they were hanging themselves. Is that something that people are aware of? Is that a crisis right now? Uh, yes, it, it, this is a crisis, yes. The attack on farming and agriculture is terrifying, and it's all according to the globalist playbook. And in France, voters rejected Emmanuel Macron's globalist agenda by giving more power to left-wing and right-wing parties. Macron's support for the war in Ukraine was cited repeatedly by both opposition candidates. They seized on record-level inflation to portray Macron as a leader who paid more attention to his role on the diplomatic stage than to voters struggling to make ends meet. And in Germany, where the globalist green agenda has basically was once front and center for the world to see, they've essentially had to admit, well, the whole thing's a failure, putting the entire country into a self-inflicted energy crisis. So what are they doing now? They're moving back to, well, they're bringing back coal. And in Britain, Boris Johnson, who became, you know, he came to power because he was one of the few politicians who would implement Brexit, globalists hated Brexit. He ended up getting distracted by globalist concerns as well. And he presented himself as someone who was going to focus on the working class people, but the then he became enamored by China and the war in Ukraine. Very, very important that we understand that China is a, is a, a great country. It's going to be a gigantic factor of uh, the world economy for a long time to come. And let me say now to the people of Ukraine that I know that we in the UK will continue to back your fight for freedom for as long as it takes. The globalists routinely argue uh, that anyone who questions the idea of open markets and open borders that they're destabilizing the global system. But the truth is, it's globalization itself that is destabilizing and weakening great Western nations that have existed for centuries. And let's be real, almost all of us at this point know who the real winner in the globalization game is. 
of course, he aggressively defends the system against any and all critics. It is true that economic globalization has created new problems. But this is no justification to write off economic globalization altogether. Rather, we should adapt to and guide economic globalization. Now, ironically, of course, Xi, he's the best, you know, biggest nationalist of all, threatening anyone or any country that gets in his way. As China did recently with Australia when its air force was merely conducting routine missions over international waters. And of course, when push comes to shove on almost every issue, the political, business, and media establishment here, they agree with the CCP, I think pretty much every step of the way. Actually, they don't just agree with them, they end up rewarding China. We have a shocking development on that front involving Hunter Biden. We're going to bring you in just a few moments. Now, in the globalist worldview, it's totally logical for them to criticize and punish states here, like Florida and Mississippi, when, according to the elites, they're not living up to the modern norms, you know, abortion, trans rights, etc. But nothing that happens inside China matters to the globalists. Not the Uyghurs being tortured, not dissidents imprisoned, not child labor abuses, not Hong Kong, uh, their freedom being smashed, certainly not the COVID lockdowns, welding people into their apartments. They don't care about any of that. High flyers in business and politics just signed a letter urging President Biden to seek more cooperation and accommodation with China. Well, of course, none of them have to worry about getting their jobs offshore to China or having their neighborhoods flooded with fentanyl. No, they don't have to worry about that. But courtesy of globalization, China has the power, the money, and the prestige to bully the United States when it's being run by an incompetent, corrupt bunch like the Biden administration. And their answer to that? Well, the Biden administration basically is saying, thank you, sir, may I have another? Biden's close to lifting Trump's tariffs on Chinese goods. And Janet Yellen's meeting with her counterpart and Blinken with his this week. Nothing good is going to come out of that. And by the way, goofball John Kerry, he still thinks China is going to be a key ally in fighting climate change. Yay. All right, let's uh, get a quick uh, burst here from Laura Luma talking about... The Second Amendment, and then also, too, the people have uh, the constitutional right granted to them. It's their God-given right uh, to form militia groups and to form organizations to resist tyranny. And we have a Second Amendment right to uh, resist tyrannical regimes. And I would say that we are currently living under a very tyrannical regime. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And militia is not a bad word. And I'm tired of the press demonizing that word and faith leaders demonizing that word, talking about dangerous terrorists. No, a militia is what we are supposed to be doing here. We are directed by our forefathers to do exactly that. And we're not to be directed by our sheriff or DAs or be afraid of sitting in prison. We'll start a prison ministry if that's where they want to put us. That's fine. Okay, that won't do it. Take care. Bye-bye.